Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us online on Twitter at political underscore beats. We also have a Facebook page, too, that I never mention, but you can go to Facebook and search for Political Beats. Find us there as well. Subscribe to our feed to get new episodes right to you through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, please share, and leave reviews to help others find the old program. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter, at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner, standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you feeling? Well, you know, I was I was doing okay with this whole shelter-in-place thing, uh, but then I decided to sort of get into the mood of the man we're going to be talking about today, and I wrecked my apartment. Um, <laughs> so unfortunately now I'm podcasting here amidst the ruins. They recommend you don't put small-scale explosives inside of an apartment. <laughs> Let me tell you, like, I had trouble. I wasn't able to get a car up to the eighth floor of our building, but I managed <laughs> to throw one of my son's toy trucks into the pool instead. Fine, Jeff online at esoteric cd and our guest for today's program you know him and love him as the publisher of the federalist he also writes the transom a daily subscription newsletter for political insiders and anyone else who wishes to read follow him on twitter at b dominich he's ben dominich ben thanks for joining us here on political beats Great to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, it is a welcome respite from conversations that entirely have to do with uh, the number of people dying and how much that's acceptable when it comes to the broader economy. Uh, we'll step away from that for at least a little while and give uh, give listeners something else to think about. And uh, that is, well, before we get to the band, we ask uh, you, Ben, to first tell us a little bit about the, tell us about the Federalists, tell us about Transom, how you got into this political ecosystem. Well, I, I've been uh, basically in politics or in political journalism since I was a teenager. I uh, wanted to be a kind of a, a, a magazine reporter when I was young uh, for my sins. Uh, and I uh, turned that into a career that involved speech writing uh, at the White House, at, uh, uh, at HHS under Tommy Thompson uh, for Senator John Cornyn from Texas, and then went into the think tank landscape for quite a time uh, at uh, the Heartland Institute and the Manhattan Institute. Uh, and then along the way, I, I started a couple of different uh, uh, political media-focused companies, including uh, Red State, uh, which I co-founded and then and then sold to uh, what was then Eagle Publishing. Uh, and The Federalist, we started uh, a little more than six years ago. Uh, we have uh, phenomenal uh, staff of people, including uh, you know Molly Hemingway and many others, and we've been trucking along ever since. Uh, we uh, we have a lot of fun, and we are kind of uh, you know at this moment you know dealing with uh, a particularly interesting political time, and it's it's a very uh, it's a time when there's a lot of different movement within the landscape of political media and other media as well. Uh, we like what we do there, and uh, and it's a pleasure for me to be able to to run an operation like that at a time like this. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't uh, get uh, interested in the cultural side of things as well, which is a main part of our beat at the Federalist. Uh, it used to be that the culture sections of of uh, political magazines were all devoted to book reviews of mm -hmm. books written by the friends of people writing the reviews. <laughs> uh, now we've finally gotten to a point where you can review Netflix shows and and talk about uh, uh, media and uh, and uh, both sort of the pop culture, the high and the low, uh, in interesting ways, and that's what we try to feature. 
and of course uh, federalist.com for more there Ben with us today to talk about a little band that you might have heard of active for the past 56 years or so one of the more influential rock bands of all time 100 million records plus sold worldwide uh, and uh, and scoring the soundtracks for movies and TV shows for the past uh, 25 years or so uh, it's the excuse who. me pardon yes, me pardon yes. me I, I gotta put on my sunglasses now uh, <laughs> 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 this is the who and we talk with Ben Dominich about the who Ben we turn the floor back over to you to begin tell us uh, why you love the who how you got into them and why anybody else should care about this music made by the who so it, it's kind of a weird choice um because and, and in fact, uh, my my family, which is very, if you will forgive the the digression, my family is very musical, and uh, you know all of us play instruments. We we play uh, together uh, just during the holidays and and things like that. And, and uh, my brother is, is very active in terms of being a guitarist in the North Carolina music scene. Um, my sister is is can play multiple instruments and that kind of thing. And our parents are very musical, and. Uh, so they all had opinions about the fact that I chose the who <laughs> for this. Um, they were like, why did you choose the who? And I said, well, so, I mean, if I'm talking about the people who I love the most in terms of, in terms of music, most of them are individual acts. I mean, I would be coming to you with, with Elvis. I would be coming to you with uh, uh, Bob Dylan, with David Bowie, with Jimi Hendrix, with Johnny Cash. Um and they're not bands, but I think that my interaction with the Who is is sort of kind of unique and 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 comes at it in a different way. I couldn't really say a lot of things maybe that were unique about these other very famous individual artists mm -hmm. because so much has been said about them. But to me, the Who is kind of they're oddly underappreciated in a way. Um, they, 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 this is a place that we're talking about a band that took an invention like the power cord and perfected it, which is um, it, just an amazing achievement in, in my mind. came to them was uh was kind of odd so my parents listened to a lot of music as you might imagine but they they're kind of late stage boomers so that meant lots of crosby stills and nash uh <laughs> lots lots of uh lots of joni mitchell lots of um you know stuff that had that kind of rootsy focus mm -hmm. to their to their approach um my father would always play whenever uh, whenever he had tuned up his guitar to make sure that it was tuned. He would play Blackbird, 
as, uh, as kind of his, uh, you know, test song to make sure everything was good. Uh, and, and that was very much their vibe because my father had grown up uh, as an army brat and, and, you know, traveling around the Caribbean and, and in Puerto Rico and Cuba and Panama Canal Zone. He had missed out on kind of the Woodstock stage of, of music. It was all kind of post that. Um, and so because of that, they really didn't, they didn't own the who they didn't play the who, but they did play the Beatles. And so, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, I was 12 or 13 and I started to do, uh, I started to mow lawns in the area and, you know, when you're mowing a lawn, uh, you know, in a, in American sort of suburbia, you want to listen to music while you're doing it. Absolutely. And uh, and so I got uh, uh, so I got a cheap disc man and I would just listen to, you know, uh, whatever I could get over and over again. And I did one of those stupid. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't Columbia House. I think it was BMG mm-hmm. um, uh, CD club things. And, you know, you have to pick like 12 CDs for like a cent or whatever <laughs> it is. And and so I picked a bunch of, of, of Beatles CDs and a bunch of other stuff, too. But. One of the things that I listened to was the White Album, and and of course, at, at the at the center of that, you know, is Helter Skelter, which is such a standout non Beatles like song in the midst of all these other iconic Beatles songs, and it was just sort of curious to me that like this song existed, and and I wondered where it came from, and of course, you know the the you know the mythology around it or or the the story around it is that. Uh, this is something that Paul wrote after listening to an interview with uh, Pete Townsend uh, talking about uh, their music and sort of frustrated that like, you know, we don't we don't have a song that kind of cracks the way that the, the Who does. So that got me curious for that. So I ordered their greatest hits album from the same stupid music club. <laughs> and I probably listened to that thing. Uh, I mean, you know, over the course of, of an entire summer. I probably listened to it every day, you know, because I was I was listening to it while I was mowing lawns and while I was uh, just going around and, and minding my own business, and that just sort of ingrained in me this this interest in this band. And of course, then of course, after after you listen to something like that, you start going back and you start finding the albums and you start listening to more. And it just became apparent to me that like this this band is amazing, and this is obviously long before they uh, had the kind of influence on movies and tv shows uh that they uh came to have uh but that that's really the the stage where i i just sort of uh, appreciated them i think at a much greater degree uh than uh, a lot of my uh, teenage cohort in rural virginia so for me the who was that band that was always the weak sister of the the triumvirate of great British invasion rock groups, you know, like mm-hmm. you, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hearing the Beatles on the radio when I was a kid. I was I'm, I'm basically I'm pretty sure I'm your same age, Ben. I, I'm 1980, uh, and so like you couldn't turn around without hearing you know all the late period Beatles stuff and even the earlier stuff on the radio. Same with all the Stones' big hit singles throughout the 60s and their album tracks in the 70s. And then for the Who, all you ever seemed to hear about was like, well, my generation, Pinball Wizard, which you know, you know, was a good song, but felt like a little gimmicky. It's a song about a kid who's deaf and dumb and blind and playing pinball. What the hell is this? Um, and then like about half of who's next would be played on classic rock radio. And then, then there was like, I don't know, who are you? 
which I always thought was amusing because they would actually, you know, say the word, you know, say the f bomb on on radio. You could get away with that. At for least, some at least till Janet Jackson. Then they had to go and scrub and, it out. And then, and then they had to scrub it out, right? But um, what changed for me uh, was, you know, just at that moment in high school where my my musical tastes were fermenting. I was getting into the Beatles like in a hardcore way. I was exploring classic rock. I chanced uh, miraculously. To find, I don't remember what what cable channel it was was playing it. Uh, I found a little movie called "The Kids Are All Right," and it, I just tuned in, and it just happened to be on. It might have been at like one a.m. in the morning, and it was playing. And it opens with the Who in 1967 on like you know the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and you know they go through this incredibly awkward interview where like you know they're they're basically messing with the smothers brothers this is obviously like a prearranged comedy bit cuz like you see them losing their composure the, the the smothers brothers and then they play my generation and you know it's a really great version and it ends with literally Keith Moon's drum kit exploding detonating <laughs> uh, and and the most amazing part about it is as i learned later that this is the moment where pete townsend lost his hearing because a piece of shrapnel <laughs> from keith moon's kit which he had overloaded he asked the guy the tech you know this is a planned thing but he asked the tech to put twice as much explosive in there <laughs> and a piece of shrapnel went into to townsend's ear generation <laughs> So right there in the moment, you see the moment where, T, where where Pete Townsend becomes deafened because of Keith Moon's ridiculous antics, and the rest of the film goes through all of this this story. It's a musical story. It's the greatest rock film ever made. I, we'll talk about it a little more on our next episode because that's when that came out in 1978. But I just started learning that there was so much more to this band than what I had seen on the radio, mm -hmm. and, and I guess it, I think it's particularly relevant. Uh, for this early episode, you know, because we're talking about the Who in the '60s here, for the most part, is what I had no idea about with them is how funny they were. This there there was this unique, weird sense of humor, this very British but also very insouciant and self-deprecating sense of humor that that combined with like a very deep sense of seriousness and sincerity to basically create, you know. It, it melded perfectly with my own sensibility, which is like, you know, me taking myself very seriously and like believing deeply in things, but also like taking the piss and like laughing at myself and writing <laughs> songs about dogs and magic buses and, you know, you know, pinball wizards and, uh, you know, goofy things like, you know, spiders named Boris. Mary waves at me Mary Ann 
This was a band that sang to me on a level that no other group ever had and very few since then do. I actually think it's very telling. I'm one of these music obsessives who like keeps two separate lists in my head. Like what are the five objectively greatest bands of all time? And then what are my five favorite bands of all time? And it's very telling for me that the only band that makes both of those lists anymore is the Who. <laughs> they are obviously one of the three most important groups in the history of popular music but after all this time they have remained my favorite group in popular music or close jeff can i ask you a question about that you you when you yeah. happened on the kids are all right was that like on pbs or something like how did you see that i was literally i can't remember what station it was i thought it was cable and not that but it was just they were playing that's so I, I, was, I was like you know just you know, channel surfing it was like 2 a.m in the morning you know mm -hmm. on, on like a friday night and i'm down in the family room or in the basement and it just happened to be on and it did it include the the rock and roll circus? Yes, it what? did. I mean, it, it, it was it was the, oh, the older so edited great. one. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So like you 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 saw them playing a quick one while he's away. Oh, uh, that's, which we'll, that's so good. <laughs> which we'll get to. Um, it is just an amazing film, and it the thing you need to understand about the Who is it's it's more than just their sensibility, and it, of course it really comes down to in a way sort of Pete Townsend's songwriting sensibility. It, it's about every member of this band. This is a band where every single member, you can make an argument that they were the best at what they did mm -hmm. in rock. Now, maybe no one's going to agree that every single member is the actual number one, but you'll find people who argue, yeah. like Roger Daltrey is like one of the greatest rock singers of all time. Pete Townsend, I would say he's probably the greatest rhythm guitarist of all time. Mm -hmm. He's not like a standard lead guy. As you said, he took the power chord and he honed it to perfection. He's the great rhythm guitarist of the rock era. John Entwistle, I mean, everyone talks about the genius of John Entwistle's bass playing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's Keith Moon. Keith Moon, Moon, the madman, the legend. <laughs> the you stuff know, the, that he does often seems insane, but it works. <laughs> it works. It works. And and then and the great thing about Kids Are All Right is that they, they showed you like some early stuff from like nineteen sixty five. It's in black and white. Mm -hmm. And he's playing like like shout and shimmy or something like that. And he's just like he's he's like looks like he's ten years old. He's got that bowl cut and his just arms are flailing like this like like an enraged chimpanzee smashing the drums and yet somehow it all comes. <laughs> out in, in in some sort of rhythmic time and you had never heard anything like that before the who
there was no people always ask like who do you, who's who's better uh, Keith Moon or John Bonham. For me, it's an easy call. John Bonham is a great drummer, obviously, but Keith Moon defined the sound of hard rock drumming. And he did it in 1964 and 1965. This band altered the sonics of the musical world. And they just kept growing and growing and growing all throughout this decade. And they didn't even reach their full maturity until the albums that we're going to be discussing in our next episode. <laughs> but this first decade is so amazing. I love it so much. So I don't know, uh, you know, Scott, do you want to set the stage or do you want me to? Uh, go ahead and set the stage. I'll just mention this is part one of two. We will come back with a second episode, and we're going to try to take this through, and Jeff can correct me, through Live at Leeds and essentially The Seeker is where we'll end just yeah, before, just before, just before who's next, essentially. Right. You know, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a smart place to end because there is really kind of a fundamental shift between that early Tommy era of The Who and then who's next. But I mean, what's the backstory? I'm going to keep it brief because there's really no need to get too detailed about it. These four guys, they all growing up in West London. Um, you know, they meet the three of them, uh, you know, Keith and or rather John, Pete and Roger. They all knew each other from school. They all went to, to high, basically high school together, their version of a high school. And um, then, you know, I think Pete went off to art school, art college instead of going to a real school. And that, he says that that fundamentally changed the way that he viewed, you know, both art and music. And they form a band. Band goes through various iterations. Originally, it's called the Detours and Roger was the leader. Finally, they uh, find a guy. They fire their old drummer because he just, you know, he, they went to an audition and he wasn't good enough. Poor Doug Sandham. Could have been like the Pete Best, you know, of the <laughs> Who, right? Uh, and they basically hold open auditions at their gigs uh, because they don't have a new drummer. Uh, and some guy in, in the audience uh, who had bleached his hair, he, 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 he dyed his hair red. So he was a ginger. Uh, it's hard to imagine Keith Moon as a redhead, but apparently in 1964 he was. He says, hey, can, I, can you give me a shot? I'm really good. I think I can do a good job behind the drums for you. He goes up there. <clears throat> he literally destroys his drum kit during his audition. They're playing live to a, an audience, and I think he snaps off a bass pedal. He rips the drum head of his, of his kick, uh, and the, the who turned around to him and said, you got the gig. <laughs> <laughs> You're hired, and that's how the Who became the Who. They had like a little uh, a, a phase where during the whole mod craze in, in in 60s London, they renamed themselves the High Numbers, and and they, they put out a like a, a goofy uh, knockoff single called "I'm the Face" and "Zoot Suit." These are basically songs that were actually like blues standards that they rewrote, you know, gave new lyrics to to make them all mod and stuff like that. But then they changed their name back to what they originally been, which is the who and they are found by these other like you know arty guys who want to do a movie about rock music in the wake of a hard day's night uh their names are kit lambert and chris stamp uh and thank god because they actually caught footage of them in their very early era we have tapes of the who playing in 1964 because these guys were on the scene filming them uh and kit lambert and chris stamp take them uh shop them around london so this is a really good band they fall in with uh, Shel Talmy, famous villain of rock production, uh, Kinks producer, yes. guy who really, really hated hi-fi stereo production. So mono was his thing. Uh, and he is their producer for their first several singles and their first album. But I guess it all begins with 1964's I Can't Explain. 
This is the beginning of The Who's career. It's a three-chord wonder. It's a clear knockoff of those kink songs like All Day and All of the Night and uh, You Really Got Me. But, you know, for a debut single, it really doesn't come much better than this. been an integral part of their performances for now 55 years um it didn't make quite as big of a dent here in the u.s than it did in the in the uk in 64 and 65 but as as jeff points out yes heavily influenced by what the kinks were doing they shared producers uh, that's not a coincidence i think but uh it, it holds up well as a first single no doubt those thick reverb chords of townsend that slashing guitar solo and especially early on uh, on, on my generation and, and a little past there, the the the, the soul R and B uh, influence that would be on some of these Who tracks. You have these backing vocals, which, if I'm not mistaken, aren't by the Who, right? They're by the Ivy League. Uh, uh, Shell Talmy uh, brought them in. He didn't think the Who's backing vocals were up to par. So, <laughs> which is vocals. really it's really funny when you get to like the stuff they'll be doing right. on the Who sell out that the Who's yeah. backing vocals aren't good. But yeah, yeah, you got the girl the girl singers behind them, which is kind of like one of those those delightful like early mid 60s touches but you it works it. in the beginning i mean just like all day and all night of course it's just like an engine you know, it's, 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 it's it's an engine starting when you hear those chords ring out at the start of i can't explain uh jeff can i ask you you have like a, a an opening series of singles here from the who yeah can't explain anyway anyhow anywhere and then my generation like it, that's a pretty i mean like uh, you're you're very familiar with a lot of bands in terms of their starting singles and the and the type of things that they roll out with. That's a pretty dang good dang good rollout. <laughs> I mean, it's it's seismic, right? I mean, I, you know, talk about a band that didn't sound anything like the Who, but I'll say like the Smiths may have had a similarly good opening run of singles. Yeah, you know? but uh, but yeah, it's seismic, and and the irony is that this is an era for the Who where they're not really a great album act. That's the funny yep. thing about mm-hmm. them. I actually like both of the Who's first two albums, but uh they're not a patch on yeah. these singles. Like the second the second single is Anyway Anyhow Anywhere. And this of course is it's now we're in, we're into early 1965, you know. And the message again, not a love song. It's I could go any way, way I choose. I could live anyhow with nothing to lose. This is just a, a an anthem of rebellion. You can understand why they kind of became like you know the emblematic, you know flagship band for like you know youth culture in London, the mods, mm-hmm. uh, because these songs 
Townsend was very self-conscious about it too. He was very self-conscious that he was writing for an audience. He was writing for people. He was writing for the kids, you know. And he's always kind of held on to that. He, yeah, you'll sometimes see him agonizing about it in later songs. But like anyway, anyhow, anywhere is just like this great act of rebellion that works. And it's also got to be pointed out. This is one of the first times you're ever going to hear feedback in a rock song. Right. That could. It's not even a guitar solo. It's just Pete Townsend holding a chord and throwing his guitar up next to an amp, and everything just explodes. Nothing gets in my way, not even locked doors. Don't follow the lines that have been laid before. I get along any way I dare, any way, anyhow, anywhere. how deep you want to get into to each of these but i want to ask you just as someone who is is familiar with both sort of myth and and legend surrounding uh all of these different songs yeah is the is the whole townsend thing about getting his car towed by the by the queen mother as an inspiration for my generation is that true i you know i've heard that story before i assume it's all bunk you know <laughs> I, just, I feel like that's just too it's too perfect for it to be to be true i mean it, it, it seems rather obvious that again you know anyway anyhow anywhere big hit their first real hit in the uk charts goes i think to number 10 and so obviously townsend's saying well okay this is working i got mm-hmm. i got an idea this is playing well what am i gonna do i'm gonna write another anthem and then this song was originally written as like a blues song, I think. Like yes. Kind of like a Mose Allison parchment farm kind of a thing. He writes, you know, the anthem of a generation. You know, it, it's so funny that we'll talk about it and it, it, it almost seems glib. This is a song that, you know, you hear in car commercials or something like that. You know, it gets played on TV shows. It's impossible for us to really appreciate just how out of left field the song, the sound the spirit, the message of my generation was. This is a song where literally Pete Townsend writes and puts in Roger Daltrey's mouth, you know, hope I die before I get old. A line, of course, he lived to regret because he is <laughs> thankfully still here with us. Yes. But, but this is top 10 rock hit radio 1965. This is like some real kind of rebellious fu stuff, and of course the 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 rebellion isn't just in the music; it's in the sound. Yeah, just the pounding of Keith Moon's drums and the way the guitar just hammers on as he plays. You down, 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 down. It's like a hammer. I think one thing that really sticks out to me about this is, you know, just writing a generational anthem is is always a challenge but to have it come from these 
guys who are, I mean, uh, uh, they're, they're 20 and 21, I think, when my generation comes out. And, and it, has, it, it has a resonance that goes beyond that particular moment in time in the sense that there's lots, there's lots of songs that I think of as being sort of generally anthemic of, of the, uh, the type of time that they're within, mm-hmm. but they, but they have very confined and limited, uh, appeal. And that beyond that type of, of, uh, period of, of time, uh, people don't really have them resonate as much. I mean, when I, when I was a teenager, you know, uh, people, would cite various Smashing Pumpkin songs or, or Nirvana songs or things like that as being, you know, generally, you know, uh, uh, representing what they felt about their life, and and people don't say that today. You know, that those those things they come and they go. My generation has just hung around as this song that is representative of teenage angst and uh, frustration and rejection of authority uh, in ways that I think. They couldn't even have expected at the time. It, it, it just—it's amazing to me that it has the kind of resonance that it does across generations, as opposed to being confined to its moment. Jeff questions. Uh, I didn't. I didn't find a suitable explanation, or at least a definitive explanation, on Daltrey's vocal performance. You know, the, the stuttering, the the, the holding, oh, the consonants. It's, it's, it's yeah. totally supposed to. It's. I mean. Uh, this is the explanation that's usually given. And I believe it's completely accurate. It's you know the mod scene. Those guys were into uppers. They didn't. They didn't smoke weed. They they took Bennies. They took you know uh, you know basically t- whatever the version of crystal meth was for them back then. <laughs> Dexies and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, it's the starter you get when you're like really pilled up. You're like you know hope I like that kind of a thing. That's what that's supposed to represent. And it was kind of like a like a a little secret signal to like you know the in crowd to say that like yeah we're one of you we we we're in that scene we're hip and that you know that the squares wouldn't really understand they wouldn't get the reference and so you can get away with it um i don't know if you want to transition slide into the album itself that's, my that's generation the album. Yeah, sure. um but 
I want to echo something that Jeff mentioned earlier as we sort of get into my generation, and and, and that is the the sound of this album is really incredible uh, from what else was happening around the time, and specifically, as Jeff pointed out, Keith Moon's drum sound, nothing, I mean, nothing sounded like Keith Moon's drums did on my generation at this time. I mean, uh, Ringo didn't play that way. Charlie Watts didn't play that way. The the drummers at this time, they were not recorded and they weren't playing in the same way and in the same planet that Keith Moon was playing. Uh, And it it just jumps right out at you on this My Generation album. It is a hard, hard sound. The Um, funny thing is, I don't even think those drums were recorded particularly well. It's just that Keith Moon hit the skin so damn hard. The physical power comes through, even if it's recorded like, you know, know, with a tin can and some strings. It's just, (laughs) he is such a physical presence. Mostly originals here for for a debut album. There's a couple of James Brown covers, uh, "Please, Please, Please," and and uh, uh, what I, I don't mind, and, and and they're all right. But the power here on my generation is in I think the quality of the original songs of Townsend's work from the very beginning. Yeah, um, by the way, I want to, you know it's factoid worth noting is that that wasn't going to necessarily be the case. They actually had a first version of the album that was almost primarily covers. It had my generation on it and a couple of other originals, maybe two others, but all the other songs were covers. Uh, they're, they've since come out on outtakes, mm-hmm. like you know, like Shout and Shimmy and Anytime You Want Me, Luby, Come Back Home, stuff like that. Uh, but it was when Townsend heard, um, you know, what the Beatles were putting out that he got a crisis of confidence. He said, "Yeah, crap, I got to go back. <laughs> I got, I got to write some stuff." And so they delayed the release of the album for several months as Townsend was recording all this new original material, and that's why we have the version of My Generation that mm. we have today. Mm. When when you dig into some of the songs on here, um, look, I, I, it's impossible to to uh, out outpace out uh, overshadow My Generation, but the, the kids are all right. Does as good of a job as you could possibly expect. That is it's the better song. I, I think it's the better song too. You know, it doesn't have the uh, the, the the generational resonance that, that Ben talked about earlier, but it's it's a better song. That 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 big opening chord that that echoes a hard day's night into that the metronomic thumping of Keith Moon's snare, which of course is interrupted by those incredible fills that he gets into. Those big chiming guitars, the three part melodies, the oohs and the ahs and the background vocals. Uh, the kids are all right. Is 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 a great song that also sort of talks. Uh, uh, you know, lyrically about uh, similar 
I guess, similar topic as, as my generation. Um, well, what, what, one thing that I do think we should appreciate that was pretty revolutionary for them to do this early on in their career is that my generation as a song is is really uh, uh, one that lets the bass and the drums yeah. be the lead mm-hmm. in a way that that is you know I, I think kind of risky for uh, uh, a, a band that 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 is that young to do um, but is is interesting in terms of the the decision that they made to clearly have that as the advance of, of the song as opposed to you know leaning back on on the traditional approach that people would have yeah absolutely about the kids are all right is that this is where you first see that that weird soulfulness mm-hmm. that that underlines almost all of the who's music going forward uh come to the fore you know my generation is obviously very kind of a snotty up your nose rebellious anthem but then the kids are all right you know it opens with that sort of that line where it says like i don't mind if other guys dance with my girl they're all good. I know them all pretty well. And then that very wistful thought, I know sometimes I must get out in the light. So better leave her behind with the kids. The kids are all right. That's just such a it's it's sort of like in that same vein as In My Room by <laughs> Brian Wilson. It's very, you know, thoughtful, it's very introverted and very unexpected coming from this band which had prior to this been well, you know, the thing is, it isn't entirely unprecedented because what's their first single? It's I Can't Explain. You know, I've got these feelings in my head, uh, you know, that I can't explain. I, I think it's love. I try to say it to you, but I, I don't know how to get out, get it out of my mouth. The Kids All Right carries that through, and this is that element of Pete Townsend as a songwriter, as a lyricist. He's one of the greatest lyricists of the rock era. I am absolutely convinced of this, uh, both capable of being hilariously funny and deeply self-lacerating and I think also philosophically profound. And this is the moment where it first shines through. And of course, the irony is that uh, somewhere else on the album, he writes a song about getting divorced. Yeah. It's just like the most hilariously cruel thing you've ever heard. It's called Illegal Matter. It's a legal matter, baby. Uh, and I think uh, he gave it to Roger to sing, but Roger was actually getting divorced yes. at the time. So he was like, screw <laughs> that. I can't sing this. I'll get sued. So that's why Pete Townsend takes his first ever lead vocal on a Who song. <laughs> I 
such a great example a legal matter of that of that uh, you know r&b boogie uh, that swing that a legal matter has the short jolting rhythms and a, and a fantastic melody and, and nicky hopkins showing up on piano on some of these songs anyway anyhow anywhere he's there he's on uh, a legal matter as well um that's just a, a really fantastic song I, I like the goods gone as well uh, on this yeah. album that very menacing feel that that almost the, the chanting of the chorus almost the the, the holding of a note on gone um that's a really good track on on my generation as well mm-hmm. i mean the only only problem about this album is first of all the who you know the who and james brown they love james brown they they, they covered not only the songs on this album but they did a bunch of other ones live you can find some on the bbc sessions too but man yeah this is not this was not the artist not they should not the artist they should have <laughs> devoted themselves to like you know, Roger does a creditable job, I suppose, but there's only one James Brown, you know? So, like, you know, him doing I Don't Mind and Please, 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 those are both off of the, you know, the famous The Live of the Apollo uh, James Brown live album, which was, of course, like a, like an artifact that was encased in cultural gold for uh, UK uh, R&B and mod groups. Um, they just don't really work. I don't know if they would have been the album would have been improved if, if they had taken any of the other outtakes from them and put them on. I'm not actually sure it would have. I think they, they probably took the best ones that they had. But th- that's why this first album is just a little bit weaker than mm-hmm. than almost all of the rest. Um, well, actually, except for the one that comes next. But <laughs> we, have, we have some very happy, happy things to get to before we get to that next album. Before we move on from my generation, I wanted to ask Ben, do you have any final thoughts? Well, just uh, it seems to me that one of the things that you know you you can appreciate about a band if you go back and look at their origin stages is you know it's pretty clear that this was a band that from the get go was willing to take risks to be inspired by uh, by you know a lot of different sources, um, but also one that wasn't you know set on on a previously crafted. Uh, plan of, of of approach. Uh, they they really were playing around with a lot of different things. And Townsend's approach, I think, throughout the next two decades was going to be one that uh, that really you know was willing to engage in those kinds of risks, as opposed to being uh, you know tied to we have to have a particular predetermined sound or predetermined approach to the way that we create music. And that's something that I, I really, you know, have come to appreciate about their early stuff is that, you know, they, that they were willing to engage in that kind of risky behavior, which just to, to sort of step back for a moment there, you know, today that's the problem with a lot of the 
new music that I experience and 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 uh, listen to these days is that from a very early point in your career, you are expected to have a particular sound that all of your music revolves around. Uh, and while there were certain elements of that that clearly you know was was part of the Who's approach, it wasn't something that they were tied to to such a degree uh, that it became a limiting factor in the type of art they were able to create. I mean, the elements about The Who that remain continuous throughout the career are based on the character traits of the actual musicians themselves. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, you know, the, the guitar, the drums, the bass, the vocals. That's because, you know, you've got Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, John Entwistle, and Keith Moon. Uh, and yet the music they kept playing throughout their career changed and it changed and it changed. But you're right. They were able to evolve. And, you know, these days people are also expected to like go into certain boxes and, and be somewhat vaguely interchangeable, which I guess brings us to the Who's Next single, a song called Substitute, which uh, Pete Townsend wrote. The, 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 the line that he, he had is that he, he, always, he, he always felt like the Who were being treated sort of as a substitute for the Rolling Stones. Oh, like, here's this, this hard rock rebellious band. Here's this other hard rock rebellious band. Uh, and he didn't feel like they were that way at all, but he felt trapped by that. And so he ends up writing, uh, what? I'm just going to come out here and say, this is March 1966. This is maybe the greatest non-album single in the history of rock music. If not, number one, it's close. I cannot fully impart to you because I don't want to spend two hours on it. Just how much I love Substitute. This is a miracle of songwriting, uh, musically and lyrically. I love the lyric about this, which is all just you know, like you know, word tricks. It's like, you know, I'm a substitute for another guy. You know, I look pretty tall, but my heels are high. The simple things about me are all complicated. I look pretty young, but I'm just backdated. I just and then the fact that for the Who, a, a band that's based around this furious guitar approach, this is a song that's carried on an acoustic guitar. All right. There is actually, if you listen very carefully, you can hear a very quiet electric rhythm guitar in the background. But this is a song where it's 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 Keith Moon on drums and John Entwistle on bass. And ironically enough, Pete is just playing that acoustic guitar his ass off. This is one of the five first songs that I learned to play when I picked up guitar because I wanted to be able to dash off those opening chords. <laughs> and they're still to this day some of the most satisfying things you can play on a guitar.
a uh, couple of things about this uh, this song. Uh, look, obviously, it, and it's supposedly inspired by a line in, in uh, Tracks of My Tears. Um, the uh, the it, there's this whole thing that uh, it goes around the Beatles uh, who. Uh, where John Lennon like demanded that the bass on Paperback Writer have like a Wilson Pickett sound, but that was recorded just a month after Substitute was released, and I feel like the bass in this song definitely influenced the way that they approached that. Um, the uh, the other thing that I, I've always remembered about this song is is that they change the line in the last uh, stanza for the U.S. release yeah. about the dad's uh, about the singer's dad being black. Yeah, I look all white, but my dad was black. That that, that got yep. them banned from Southern radio. <laughs> Which April 1966, people, not that long ago. Anyway, uh, it's just it, uh, it's an excellent song, and it's one that uh, you know again is is just, it sticks out how you know it's. Uh, uh, as you know, they have all these. You said before that they were great as a single band, as opposed to an album band at this stage, and this is a perfect example of that because that's a, that's a you know a single that that has stood the test of time and that is still recognizable to so many different people. Um, and they, while they couldn't at this stage put the kind of albums together that they would like, uh, their single game was just crazy good. It's a fantastic song. I, I, I'm not going to say as much about it as Jeff did, or not going to be as, as over the moon as Jeff is. It does hold <laughs> a special place in my heart. I hear it, uh, well, I hear it all the time, but specifically, back when I was producing radio, we did these big, long uh, opens for the show and um, that we put together, like two minutes long, and then one of the opens was uh, for a day that one of the three hosts was missing. We had a uh, we had a substitute host in. He did a very good job. And so the next day's open was all these clips of the host making, you know, salient points and, and being really good at the, the job and then uh, interspersed <laughs> with with uh, lyrics from substitute. So uh, that that's why this song is always pretty, pretty close to the top of my mind. I just want to point out that, like, I am like, deeply, deeply ensconced in, like, the music scene of early 1966 because i'm a music nerd nothing sounded like this nothing at all sounded like this on the radio in the charts that bass that drum sound yeah that big bass solo that that end whistle gets in at the second half of the song uh, he said he said it was basically an accident like uh, he just turned his 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 amplifier up when they were <laughs> recording the song and he said i'm just gonna go to town and, and then they realized well yeah i guess we're just gonna have to make this a bass solo because john's playing so loud and it works beautifully Beautifully. And the thing is, is that nobody in a very different way sounded like the next Who single, which is a song that scans a hell of a lot different in 2020 than it must have in 1966. <laughs> a song called I'm a Boy. Oh, my gosh. During like our, our, you know, our big, you know, super woke transgender wars, the idea of like, I'm a boy, I'm a boy, but my mom won't admit it. I'm a boy, I'm a boy. But if I say I am, I get it. Uh, it was apparently like Townsend's first idea, first ever like you know impulse to do something like a, like an opera, a rock opera, or a big big series of story songs. He boiled it down to this one thing. The idea for this was called quads, where like you know in the future you can you can order. Boy, this is again yeah, very very yeah. ahead of his time. <laughs> you could do sex selection, you know, like you know, uh. and so like they wanted four girls, and 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 apparently like the company screwed up, and they gave him three girls and one boy, and so the the boy is forced to like you know. There's this horrible line. It's like, you know, you know, put your frock on, Jane Marie, you know, plait your hair, Felicity, 
You trim your nails, little Sally Joy. Put this wig on, little boy. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> and it's hilarious. And it just it, again, this is where you start to see that really goofy left field British sense of humor that Pete Townsend had and just infused throughout the Who's work during this era. I don't think I can add that much to it except that, you know, again, we we have so many different little items of pop culture that are incredibly predictive about the way that we're going. For them at this moment, that idea of sex selection in your offspring was something that was right out of, you know, a dystopian novel, science fiction, yeah. something that would, you know, it's it's a thing you can make a darkly comic song about because it's never going to happen. Right. Okay. <laughs> and then cut, cut to, no, that's what's exactly happening today. Um, uh, my friend uh, Mark Hemingway uh, was was sharing around uh, this morning uh, one of my favorite little elements of, of pop culture from Futurama, the, uh, sh- uh, the Matt Groening show, which I have uh, made reference to many times about uh, their... Uh, their don't date robots PSA, <laughs> anticipating <laughs> anticipating was a future. A joke back then, and now <laughs> yes, a- anticipating a future in which people will have to make a decision between oh, uh, no. you know going out and, and and dating each other normally, or just having a sex robot that you that you have at home <laughs> and takes care of all your needs. Will and certainly help with social distancing. At exactly, least. exactly. It's I mean, uh, uh, so I I have to admit that about um this is this is the one of the douchiest things I can probably say. Um, I was at uh, the airport in Aspen about two years ago um, uh, after the Aspen Ideas Festival, which they announced today has been canceled for this year. So God knows, you know, what all the intellectual elite will do. Um, the uh, But I was, we were, there was a plane delay because of uh, wind. Uh, and so David Brooks and I were were sitting across from each other and, and just chatting and stuff. And I told him that he really ought to start listening to Father John Misty um, <laughs> because because he anticipates so many of these things. And, you know, he obviously has that whole song from uh, I guess it's a. Uh, Two albums ago, maybe just one album ago, uh, where where he had uh, where you know the opening line is is about uh, uh, betting Taylor Swift every night in the Oculus Rift, <laughs> and the thing is, we're not that far removed from that. You know, yeah. we really are. We're like ninety seconds away from that being a thing that you can do, and and you know this social distancing thing is only going to accelerate it. So, uh, cutting back to the Who, the point is, at the, it, what I like about them is they have this like. Cohen brothers esque darkly comedic side mm-hmm. to, to a lot of the things that they do. And it's clearly a Townsend like mood element. And I think that this is the first song where you really, you, uh, I mean, I guess you get that in the legal matter, but, but this song really is an example of that. And the funny part of it really is, is that cut to, you know, uh, uh, 45 years later, uh, no, no, uh, 60 years later. And, and it's, uh, and, uh, and it's one of these things where, yeah, we're, we're probably for, for, you know, years away from this being like a, a, a sort of nationwide thing that like, Oh, which sex are you just going to pick? And it's just going to be normal and accepted. <laughs> and we're all going to go along with it despite the madness involved. <laughs> Another little girl was Sally 
But not only that, but that like you can force your kid to like you. Know, okay, you know what? We wanted a uh, girl, but we got a boy. But you're a girl now. We're yes. Gonna, we're going to make you do that, and that's yeah. okay. Because so, as a consumer, I'm always right, and, and so <laughs> exactly. You know, listen. I paid good money for this. This is exactly what I deserve. So I mean, there's there's another single. I can probably take it with uh, the uh, the album that it, it kind of is a companion to, and that's Happy Jack which was a kind of a mainstay of the Who's live career. I've always kind of liked it. I think it's mostly, a, to me, the song, its primary appeal is Keith Moon's drum track, which is practically like musical drums. The mm-hmm. way he, he goes over his toms like, he's almost hitting notes with him. It's an incredible drum performance. It is a very silly song. It's a very British song in a, in a, in a lot of ways. It's, it's almost kind of amazing that it had appeal in America. They actually renamed the Who's next album, Happy Jack, when they sent it to the USA. But they couldn't stop Jack or the waters happy. And they couldn't prevent Jack from And that next album is a quick one, which is, I think, kind of universally agreed to be the most compromised Who album of their career, at least up until, like, you know, the the post-Keith Moon era. Um, I like it. I think it has its virtues, but there are is no question in my mind that it suffers from a couple of things. First of all, uh, their new producer, they had a big acrimonious breakup with Shell Tommy, uh, lots of lawsuits and all sorts of silliness. That's a surprise. Uh, Yeah. I mean, and that substitute was all tied up in that as a matter of fact. Uh, And they had Kit Lambert is brought in. It was their manager and now is their producer as well. Uh, Lambert actually would end up producing some pretty good records for The Who, uh, but this is not one of them. And so that production is a huge problem. And of course, the other whole problem with it is that they had this stupid gimmicky idea like every member of the band is going to write two songs. <laughs> um, Roger couldn't even do that. He only wrote one, one, and that one song is not good. Keith didn't really write two songs. He, he stole one from an old TV show theme song. That's Cobwebs and Strange. And the other one is I Need You, which is, you know, I guess notable for the crazy loud over, That's, you know, yes. like. It's just an excuse li- for him to play the drums really, 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 really loud. Li- I mean, it, the red lines. It's like you, <laughs> like the microphones in the studio clearly were not up to the task of recording it because it's just like white noise sometimes. You start my ears when my music's loud. Did you raise your hat in the yellow But the one good thing about it is that we do discover that there is another songwriter in this band who can write some really good tunes. And that, of course, is John Entwistle. And this is his coming out party. He writes two songs in this record. The more famous of those two songs, I think, is the weaker of them. That's Boris the Spider. 
classic of the stage. It's on the greatest hits albums. You know, Boris the Spider. It's pretty simple. I mean, he wrote it in two minutes. Apparently, the the story is that he was drinking with Charlie Watts, you know, at a club, and they were just making up like you know funny names about like animals. <laughs> and so, you know, he wrote Boris the Spider, and he came up with the name, and then the song kind of writes itself. Ooh, there's a you know a spider crawling on my wall. I'm going to squash it with a book. End of story. The other one, though, is Whiskey Man, which nobody talks about, but I think is actually a really clever song about a guy who drinks a little bit too much and starts to imagine he's got a uh, an imaginary friend, uh, which I think is something that probably does happen to a certain number of alcoholics. <laughs> Dark humor is what John Entwistle's trade is going to be from here forward. Mm-hmm. He found that. problem is also is that i don't think pete's songwriting is really up to par on this i don't know what you guys think about a quick one i think there is literally one true classic on this record plus another song that would become great later on but does not work on here but i'll let you guys go first uh well i mean happy jack is an interesting song because it's the song that really uh, breaks them into the u.s market um they uh, uh got booked uh based on it in multiple shows in uh in new york city afterwards and um uh the <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's the the cream uh tour where where keith moon turned 21 and and did all that stuff in a holiday inn which may have may or may not have included driving a lincoln into a swimming pool <laughs> um but the uh, the thing that is is really uh, to me, you know, uh, uh, interesting about this. Well, let, let, let's get uh, to Jeff's point. Uh, I I feel like this is they're probably uh, of the ones we're talking about. I think this is the weakest album, um, and uh, it has some interesting elements to it. But it just there's not as much of it that lasts to me. Um, uh, a quick one is the first stab that you have from them at a mini opera um and uh it's it's interesting to me that that they would kind of have this approach of of trying to figure out a way to do this um it doesn't really uh work Uh, i think you um uh in in terms of of your perspective on this i just uh, happy jack to me doesn't have as much resonance today i can get why it was popular at the time but it's never been one that I really get back to uh, all that much. Uh, and it's just kind of odd to me that, that out of all of the really interesting early songs that they did, that it's the one that helped them kind of break into things over here in the States. And if I'm projecting Jeff a little bit, I don't know if I'll steal his thunder. The, 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 steal it. Steal it away, the, my the, friend. The song that is really doesn't work here but becomes great for me is is, is the, the final song, the, the a quick one while he's away, because right. the production here is so neutered and flat, and it, it does not... 
really bring out any of the fine moments of the song. This would become great uh, during live performances, and especially the, the live at Leeds version, which we can talk about a bit later. But uh, on the album, it's just, it's just not much. <laughs> I got the I got of course these albums out of order. I got the boxed set that thirty years of maximum R and B box set, mm-hmm. which it incl- it's actually a hybrid version, but it includes the rock and roll circus um, live version of a Quick One While He's Away and that You Are Forgiven section. Yeah. You know where Entwistle's like You Are Forgiven, and they're just just destroying it. You know you understand exactly why the Rolling Stones were so embarrassed by the greatness of the Who that they had to <laughs> shelve that entire project for thirty years. Um, and then I got the album, and I listened to this horrible, weedy falsetto, and it's just produced so limply. And I'm just I, – I don't even understand how the – I guess I, I mean having already known what it was going to turn into made me you know like, hey, they figured it out. But if I had only heard this version, I would have said, well, this, this, this has no future whatsoever. Yep. There's yep. no potential here. It doesn't work. <laughs> Admit I kissed a few and once did sit on either the engine driver's lap and later with him. Have a nap. You are forgiven. And then, uh, again, I don't know if I'm stealing thunder. The one truly great song on this album is So Sad About Us. Oh, yeah. Um, just those those ringing guitars. And, you know, uh, on Happy Jack, you hear this, too. There, you know, there is some, I think, Beach Boy-style style, Beach Boy style harmony influence on some of the things they're doing, especially on Happy Jack. I think it's here on So Sad About Us. Those wonderful la-la-las on the bridge, uh, the, the lovelorn lyrics on a song like this. Uh, but all these songs have that extra oomph because End Whistle is, is mixed so high in, in, in the mix. Yeah. 
uh, So Sad About Us has been covered a bunch of times. I think it's the best song of the album. See My Way, I don't mind too much. That kind of muted bass rumble and cymbal crashes, especially toward the end. Um, but, you know, Jeff's uh, sort of overview at the start is right. I mean, they, they, they chop up the songwriting. You know, Moon's contributions are essentially not worth too much. We do hear a little bit of John Entwistle's uh, capability. He'd, he'd write more as the albums would move forward. But uh, for a number of factors, um, I agree with Ben and I think Jeff, too, that of the ones we're covering today, this is the, the weakest of a lot. And I guess I have to say that it's kind of a compliment to the album that this is still a fairly entertaining album to listen to, and yet it is the weakest of the Who's records during the 60s. Um, you know, Run, 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 kind of a fun song, right? You know, it's it almost feels like that's one that Townsend could have just cranked out in his sleep. Standard riff, you know, baby, baby, take my advice. Good riff, good singing by Daltrey. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's not a lot here. They even had to revive Heat Wave, which was one of yeah. those early Motown covers that they, they did a version of for the My Generation album, but shelved. They re-recorded it here. And it's not bad, but it's you don't come to The Who to listen to them doing, you know, uh, Martha and the Vandellas songs. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you don't come to them to listen to them do, like, old R&B and Motown covers unless you're listening to Live at Leeds. Uh, so, like... Yeah, this is this is the the only one of their records that feels weirdly inessential. The, this is the band moving away from from R and B and into pop art, right? And, and so because of that, it's it's one of these period it's these transitional albums that sometimes happen. Um, and there's still, I mean, there's still value to be had there, but because of the nature of that transition, uh, you're not going to get as much. Uh, out of them in terms of, of uh, in, inventive work, it's it's going to be a little bit lesser. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we can all acknowledge that it's just not as good. So, yeah, the pop art observation is actually really important because, like, this is you know, as I said, you know, the moment where you, you see like the silliness, I guess, the uh, the, the zaniness, the the weird insouciance emerge in, in Townsend's lyrics, and that is a very swinging sixties. Like, you know, you know, Carnaby Street, London kind of a thing. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the songs from this album, So Sad About Us, would get covered by everyone, uh, you know, from Primal Scream to The Jam. And The Jam in particular seemed to almost obsessively pattern themselves after 1966 era who. That was Paul Weller's basic, you know, his lodestar was Pete Townsend writing these, like, chunky riff rock songs in 1966 i think it took them back to a more innocent time and it was a more innocent time um but uh you know that's carried on i think in their next single which is uh you know uh, there are so many great songs written about masturbation let's just be honest <laughs> i mean you know, if 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 can, can we just can we, can we get the uh, fans can you uh, just put that into a uh, a little quote box Pull meme quote, with yes. face? <laughs> <laughs> there are just because what is rock music about if not jerking it in your room as an awkward pimply adolescent and of course that's pictures of lily which is again where does this, where does Pete come up with these ideas? You know, like a kid, awkward adolescent kid, not popular in high school, can't make it with the girls, doesn't know what to do, is all strung up. And what does he? His dad gives him like an old 1930s pinup, hmm. like you know, magazine. <laughs> he just starts. 
yanking him out every day and he feels much better until he realizes he's like i really love lily i want to go meet her and their dad says she's been dead since 1929 <laughs> it's terrible oh god but yeah this is p townsend's idea of a hit single and in england he was right this was a hit single pictures of lily man where do they come up with this stuff it's a fantastic song though it's one of my favorite songs from this era by far um dozens of bands are built simply on the chorus of this song uh you know, the power it's power pop as ben had mentioned uh, earlier uh there's a french horn solo so you got that end whistle plays that if i'm not mistaken um but you know that that start stop section where you have the chords rushing into uh Daltrey's vocals uh townsend has this incredible crunching guitar sound uh this is just this is a magnificent magnificent songwriting uh, by, lyrically, but but mostly musically from Townsend here. It's just fantastic. And uh, I mean, you know, t- to your point, this is, you can say uh, So Sad About Us is kind of the first song that they do that's in this mode, but this really is the invention of, of power pop. And uh, and it's certainly something that, that, that you know, uh, it's the whole reason Townsend coins that phrase. Uh, and What's interesting about it to me is that while it gets into the top five uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, it doesn't even crack uh, the top 40 here in America because, again, the radio stations would not run a song that was clearly what it was about. <laughs> and right, so, right. Yes. So even even to Jeff's point, if that's what rock music was about, the radio stations were not about that at the time here in the U.S. Pictures of Lily. There was a lot of moral prudery in U.S. playlists during that era. Mother's Little Helper by the Rolling Stones was uh, mm. held off of Aftermath and to be released as a single in America, and the radio stations just would not play it because it's That's like amazing. this is a song about popping pills and like you know, you know, a- angry suburban mothers staying at home and like knocking themselves out on Valium. Uh, but this is the same kind of a thing. You can't have you know songs about you know awkward adolescents uh, masturbating in their bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, <laughs> just to say, just to explain the premise of the song out loud is to laugh. I mean, that's what you've got to love about the Who about this era. This is the era. This what we're coming into now is kind of what cemented my love for the Who. Um, 
you know, you sit through their first two albums. I can't even imagine what it must have felt like if you were back there in the day. None of us were. Um, their first two albums are uneven. They've got some great songs, some good singles, um, but the albums just don't really hang together. And then all of a sudden, you get the Who Sell Out, which I consider to be one of easily one of the five best albums of the 1960s an album that on a personal level you know i i i'm i'm wary of sort of privileging my own emotional attachments to things you know too much and sort of elevating them into objective truth or something like that um on an emotional level i love this album more than almost anything that the beatles ever did Mm. or the stones or any other group from the 60s this album when I first heard it, it would have been like 1995, 96. I got the remastered CD version. It hit me like a bullet between the eyes. It was literally pitched to my exact comic sensibility, but also lurking underneath, there's that weird, you know, like, there's a weird pattern of sincerity, you know, that, that covers everything and also runs underneath everything. And to me, it's, it's no more easily explained than in the sudden explosion of melody and harmony in this band who had been like hard rock band r&b band or like you know swing and hard rock 60s london band and now all of a sudden yeah they open with armenia city in the sky which is actually a cover of uh, a song by another band that pete townsend was producing at the time called thunderclap newman Something in the air. Nobody remembers the song Something in the Air, unless you have that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers <laughs> Greatest Hits, where, where, where Petty actually did a cover of it. And it was on but, the, uh, uh, the almost famous soundtrack, too. It was. Well, there you go, yeah. right? It's a good song. Um, but that's Speedy Keen. And, and, you know, that one song is like a real hard rocking song. And I guess there's maybe a somewhat well known single from this record that is also pretty hard rocking that we'll get to later. But what comes through the most about the who sell out is two things. First of all, the brilliant concept in humor. This is the who as a fake pirate radio station. Pirate radio is not something that's familiar to Americans, but in Britain in the sixties, it was a big thing since the BBC had a corporate monopoly, had a government monopoly on the radio. Uh, what happened? And they, of course the BBC is very staid and very fussy and uptight. You would have these ships that would park, like in the English Channel, just right offshore, technically in international waters, and broadcast to the kids. And so you could hear them playing like loud rock music and, and like, you know, stuff that wasn't normally going to be given radio airplay because it wasn't approved by the censors at the BBC. And so the Who Sell Out is structured as a parody of those pirate radio stations which were just at that point being put out of business the humor here is amazing they're selling out there's commercials that are run in and out of all the songs in this album it's a concept album a concept album not about like you know a deaf dumb and blind boy or (laughs) you know not that kind of a thing or about like you know some sort of post-apocalyptic dystopia no this is just a concept album about 60s consumerism and what it was like to be a radio listener at the time and the humor is so great and the other thing is the melody this is such a melodic and harmonic album the harmonies that they're singing these just glorious three sometimes like four five six part harmonies these shimmering arpeggios these glorious swooping chord changes what happened to this band i don't know i don't know how townsend's 
not only his ambition but his creative abilities just vaulted into the stratosphere on this record and never really came down for another decade. This is, this is one of the very few albums that I ever purchased solely due to the cover of the album. I, 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 can, I can distinctly remember standing in Best Buy, you know, where all the, fine, all the finest music is sold, and, and holding this, this CD in my hand and looking and seeing you know, Townsend putting on uh, the deodorant and adultery uh, with a huge in a bathtub in a full of, of baked beans, beans. And, I'm like, and of course he's got them dripping down his mouth too. It's like so <laughs> gross. It's like he's like a baby. It's so weird. Oh, I love it. And like I, I don't know, but I just have to have it. I guess I, I the music must match the, the the quality of the cover. So I bought the Who Sell Out based only on the uh, on the cover of the album, and it was a good choice. Um, yeah, Ben's mentioned the phrase pop art, and, and Jeff just talked uh, about how this, this is structured sort of, uh, you know, with these commercials and, and pirate radio. And it, it makes no sense to me that people don't understand later on, you know, Pete Townsend selling, you know, Who songs for movies and TV. And, you know, from, from 1967, an example of how song is product, song is uh, part of culture song is intertwined with all with all these things it's right there on the album and uh, if i'm not mistaken they even tried to charge endorsement fees for the the, the, you know, the real products that are that are mentioned on the album didn't happen oh that's but, ahead of its time but they tried um <laughs> oh we did, do we have some product placement here oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um just to circle back so just thinking of the timeline here so this is 67 in in the fall of 67 they release i can see for miles which pete had had you know for for quite a while in his back pocket but um uh, they they really didn't he wasn't comfortable with the, the production quality level uh and it ends up being basically one of their best produced songs uh in terms of mm-hmm. uh they they uh, uh they record it in new york they master it in la uh and the the sound on that song is just incredible um and and moon's performance in particular is is excellent on there there's also like what's interesting about moon is that some of his key moments with the band are about his insanity but sometimes it's about his restraint Mm -hmm. um in terms of in terms of the way that uh, his his solos work 
But the the way that that song performs, it's ultimately very dissatisfying for them because it, it gets to the top 10 uh, in both UK and the US, but it doesn't get higher than that. It doesn't get to number one. Um, and it's really... Like I mentioned at the beginning that I felt like they were underappreciated. That's an example of them being underappreciated. Because I think Pete, Pete Townsend's line, uh, you know, commenting on that is that, like, I spit on the record-buying public. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that one. The Eiffel Tower in the time all night, you don't hear things. You thought that I would need a crystal ball to see you right through the haze. No, but that's but it makes sense because it deserved to be number one. Uh, so they do they do the Who sell out in uh, in December, uh, and the whole pirate radio thing uh, that Jeff talked about is really kind of fascinating because you know we don't even think about that here in America where you have all of these different radio stations that don't abide by the same rules and and you know run with bits and and uh, segments that uh, that seem to skirt the bounds of what they can get away with and under the FCC but um, the, you know the who was kind of uh, you know uh, acknowledging them and and imitating them in part because the pirate radio had embraced them so much um, uh, when uh, they they were it's it's funny but but my generation was actually temporarily you know banned by the BBC um, just in terms of of uh, you know content issues or something like that but pirate radio was playing it nonstop and so that uh, that type of thing is um, is is really an approach that's meant to acknowledge what they owe to uh, those creative pirate radio types um, and also uh, it, it ends up being I mean, I, we can talk about what their greatest album is. Um, I I personally don't think this is their greatest album, but I think it's a I think it's basically number two. Um, it's just an incredible collection, and uh, the the ways that they approach it are such a step up from the previous album that. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of amazing that they were able to to achieve so much, you know, in such a short amount of time in terms of their growth as a band. There isn't a single song on this album that I would discard. Not even any of the commercials. Even Heinz Baked Beans, which is just <laughs> basically like the rest of the band saying, "What's for tea, mom? What's for tea, daughter?" Ba, da, da, ba, ba, ba. You know, it's like it's silly, and yet it's so great because you realize that it's commercials, and then the, there are, there are these wonderful moments where they really. Townsend is just so fucking funny about subverting your expectations. There's this song right at the beginning of the album. It's the third song on the ra- on the record called uh, "It's Called 
Odorono. And if you don't know it, it's one of the great Rick Rolls uh, of 60s yep. music. Because <laughs> you, you're, you're listening to this, this, this really kind of like heartfelt ballad, beautiful, beautiful little chordal thing, really easy yep. and fun to play on guitar, by the way. You know, about this, this girl, she's on stage, she's performing. You know, there's an agent in the audience that she wants to impress. You know, she does a great job on stage. The agent comes to see her backstage. She thinks she's going to make it. He leaned in to kiss her. And then, oh, he backs away and he claims a late appointment. And then you're like, well, what's going on? And then the punchline is she ripped her glittering gown, couldn't face another another show. No, her deodorant had let her down. She should have used Odorono. And then you realize, I've been listening to an ad the entire time. This was just an advertisement, and they sucked me in, the sons of bitches. Triumphant was the way she felt as she acknowledged the applause. That is a laugh out loud moment. When I first heard that, like, she should have used Odorono. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, man. They just jingled me. That, whoa, that's so funny. And, okay, so can I, can, I, can I break in here? Yeah. Have you guys, have you guys both listened to the, the soundtrack for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. What so, are you referring to? So what I, one of the things that I appreciate about it, and it's the same thing that I appreciate uh, about our friend just Carl's uh, summer mixes that he does every year, yeah. uh, is, is uh, the inclusion of these period-specific ads mm-hmm. that they have within, I mean, like, you know, uh, uh, obviously Quentin Tarantino is, is, is a sociopath, okay? <laughs> but, but he's a genius <laughs> sociopath. And, and he you know, includes all of these little jingles from the time period, right. uh, you know, that are both in the movie, but then is included, thankfully, on the soundtrack where, um, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's uh, you know, jingles for tanning lotion and for things like that that are ju- that put you in this whole musical mindset. And what's interesting about it is that when you use those, you know, jingles and shorter ads with the the, the rota sound strings and everything else like that there's you actually get kind of this momentum yeah. to the album yep. that that like carries you forward through it um that that you know feels like you're listening to the radio in in a positive sense in a way that like the the, the jingles just slam you into that song when it starts you know next and when you come out of it and and that's just i mean it's genius it's 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 a uh you know uh, it's something that was just so unique 
Uh, and uh, and I appreciate it all the more now that we've you know our listening habits have changed to the point where I don't know about you guys, but like for the past I think four or five years I've had a Spotify subscription, so I never hear any ads anymore. Ads, right, I don't hear yeah. the, you know I don't hear the break-ins, um, and and that actually changes the way that you listen to an album. It changes the way that you listen to music, and and these the way that they do it here. Yes, it's funny, but it also provides this little break of of laughter of or a feeling in between these songs in a way that's really interesting but also there's 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 a really intelligent and subtle commentary that goes on on the way that the ads comment on the songs so mm-hmm. like there's this great run in the middle of the album from tattoo all the way through to say like i can't reach you yes, um yes. and there's this one moment again like the thing i'll never forget hearing it for the first time because it was like whiplash and yet also momentum simultaneously so like i guess my neck probably snapped in <laughs> half right right um at the end of uh, tattoo you know the, these big shimmering harmonies and then the, my favorite single ad on the album is the psa it's the obligatory public service announcement for the album so ecumenical i love it you know it's like <laughs> don't go to the angle go to the church of your choice and then it goes into our love was which is one of my favorite songs on the album maybe my, one of my five favorite songs at the end of the show which is actually a very kind of almost churchly sounding song with mm-hmm. these very high vaulted harmonies and you know the you know the big chorale masked chorale vocals um it clearly the contrast of placing that one next to that one was intentional. Or, you know, hold your group together with rotosound strings, and then here comes the masked guitar army of Pete Townsend guitars on I Can See for Miles. These songs are well integrated into, like, you know, the ads that run around them. I do want to just say a couple things about Our Love Was. I, this is a song that I, I kind of regularly will post on Twitter. I'm like, why don't people know that this is a Who classic? Why don't people realize it? I guess, first of all, Pete's singing it. This is notably an album where Pete Townsend gets more lead vocals mm-hmm. than almost any other Who record of all time. Um, and I don't get it. I get it's probably not traditional, but the funny thing is, is that it has, I would argue, the single greatest guitar solo of any song that The Who ever recorded. Now, that's a bit of a cheat because Pete Townsend isn't really a lead guitarist by trade. He's kind sort of a rhythm guitarist. And his lead, his, his solos are usually in that rhythm tradition. But here you actually have Pete just come blazing in with this giant, stinging, psychedelic rock solo uh, that comes right after these wonderful, like, love, 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 long, love, 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 long harmonies. And I remember hearing this all for the first time and just thinking uh, – this album had been hidden from me for the first 15, 16 years of my life, and now I resent the people that did not let me hear it up until now. It was such a revelation. Love, 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 love
And then it goes into I Can See for Miles, which you guys have already talked about. But I just need to comment about that Keith Moon drum track. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the most inventive, stratospherically inventive drumming yeah. that he ever brought to any record. Yep, yep. It's, it's not a, a rhythm. It's one long fill the entire time. It's, he's not going like boom, tsta, boom, tsta, boom, tsta. No, it's just it's just fills. The entire song is just drum fills, and it works so perfectly. And you've got you've got like seven part harmonies going on in the background. Sixteen guitars. I spit on the English record buyer as well for not sending that song to number one. I have no idea why it didn't. God, I just I can't say enough good things about this album. Sixty-seven is just a, an amazing, an amazing year for the Who. It is. Um, and uh, and it's not just you know uh, this album and every all the songs we're talking about. They do the Monterey Pop Festival. Um, Eric Burden of the Animals introduces them by saying, "I promise this group will destroy you in more ways than one." <laughs> um, they uh, uh, there's there's some backstage drama reportedly between with Jimi Hendrix, yeah, yeah, Jimi Hendrix. You can go ahead. You can tell the story. Well, I mean, they were arguing about who would get to go on last. They didn't yes. want to go on first because they both had similar kind of like you know. Because it, it's funny. We've gotten this far. I'm going to destroy uh, my guitar and then set it on fire. <laughs> right. We've gotten this far into the episode, and we haven't talked about how the Who innovated something that when I was a kid, I always thought, oh, well, that's what Nirvana does. They destroy their instruments, right? No. Uh, young me was a fool, did not realize that this was the Who's gig. They innovated the idea of destroying their instruments on stage at the end of a show. Happened first by accident, and then they realized that the, that the punters liked it. So it became a regular thing until they realized that they were running out of money. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not too much money. <laughs> they, they couldn't even rent equipment. Like 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 the, like the rental agencies just like, you know, hell no, I'm not going to let the Who take our instruments. We're never getting them back. So like, yeah, they stopped doing it after a while, but this was during that era where they were. And, you know, Jimi Hendrix also had his thing where he would like light his guitar with uh, lighter fluid and set it on fire. Um, and so they, they got into like a really big haggling, bickering thing about who got to go on second. I think Jimmy actually won. Uh, but the irony is that the Who had a better set, I think. And so I've listened to both. They're, they're both out there. You know, they circulate on excellent quality soundboard and they're both legendary performances. But yeah. This is that that era where they were finally coming into prominence. But the interesting thing is that the studio material is so much different from their live act. Their live act is still like, you know, a huge, mm-hmm. big, messy, hard rock. And very few of the songs from this album ever actually made it out on the road. Some of the, the most kind of unpredictable and you wouldn't have expected it one is Tattoo. Tattoo became like a mainstay on their set list for a very long time. I think they just really enjoyed singing those harmonies. 
Uh, I Can See for Miles is the answer to one of my favorite music trivia questions. It's just an easy, simple question, which is, what is The Who's only top 10 hit in America? And the answer is, I Can See for Miles. No one ever guesses I Can See for Miles. They will guess anything from Who's Next and... Uh, I knew that. Can't explain or whatever, but the answer is I can see for miles. The who's only top and that's, ten. And again, American. that's just that's garbage. I mean, that's <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, like like they they deserve to have ten top ten hits here. It's it's just again the, the when I was when I was a teenager, you know, uh, there was this experience of like a Beatles resurgence because of uh you know the the the, the documentary that they uh, uh you know had released and and the reissue of a lot of their stuff you know obviously the stones were going strong and you know had put out some pretty decent you know uh, recent albums in terms of in terms of their work at the time and so everybody was all about them but the fact that the the, the who was just sort of underappreciated uh, and that nobody really knew what I was talking about at the time, and then it became then it became everybody knows what what they are, thanks to CS frickin' I. <laughs> it's like it's like really that's what it took for you to appreciate this. Come on, yeah, I mean, people it, people now associate won't get fooled again with David Caruso. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's it's almost like how um uh the uh guardians of the galaxy 2 suddenly made people pay attention to fleetwood mac i mean come on <laughs> anyway uh, um so but, yeah go ahead no i didn't no you're gonna say something ben you go first i was i was just gonna say i i think what you can see coming out of this is the inspiration for so much of the attitude of power pop um uh, interesting creatives uh, over the course of the 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, and particularly, I would say, a band like Weezer and a band uh, like Fountains of Wayne right. um, takes a lot from the Who sell out. Like in terms of their, in terms of their pr- approach, in terms of kind of having a tongue-in-cheek attitude toward um, uh, both like the meta narrative around the band and the kind of music that they create and write. Uh, and so there's just, there are threads that come from this album that go in interesting directions if you fast forward to the future. But the thing is that the Who were also, Townsend was also very deeply sincere on these songs as well. Mm-hmm. There's, it's, it's a joke, but he's kidding on the square. Yeah. So you've got you've got songs like Our Love Was. There's nothing there's nothing, you know, ironic or distanced about that song. I can't reach you. This is where he's starting to begin to explore his weird spiritual obsessions. I can't reach you is just one of those quiet songs that, you know, lurks on the second half of the album, but it's so glorious. Sunrise this painfully sincere acoustic ballad where Pete Townsend is playing chords that I spent like a serious <laughs> a month trying to figure out and I still haven't succeeded in doing it. If you if anybody has tabs for Sunrise, please, I would love to see them because I have no idea what he's doing, if he's messing with an alternate tuning or whatnot.
times I've let myself down, my head spinning round, my eyes seeing only you. The chances I've lost, opportunities tossed away and into the blue. But hey, I mean, listen, did you know that The Who wrote a crypto Zionist song dedicated <laughs> to Israel's success in the Six Day War in 1967? It's true. It's called Rael. It's the last song on this album. And, you know, I'm, I'm amazed that people don't actually ever point this out because it's actually so obvious when you realize it. First of all, it's called Rael. I mean, he just took the is part off of it. Um, and it, he changed the bad guys from, like, you know, the Arab League to uh, the Red Chinese. So it's the Red Chins and the Millions will overspill their borders and chaos them will reign again in my Rael. Uh, and he's, you know, it, it's such like a weird concept to, again, write a song about. It, it's a mini rock opera. This is it's the longest song on the album. It's like five and a half minutes long, uh, and it's also very telling that it is based and the ending part of the song is based around a riff that he would resurrect for his first true rock opera, which is Tommy coming up in a little while. Uh, that that whole sparks underture riff. Mm -hmm. That's the ending of Rael. And I, you know, I just wonder how many people who like really love Tommy don't even realize that like, yeah, the who actually used that in a song, not like a B side or an outtake. That's actually like the big centerpiece album conclusion to their previous album. And they just said, you know what? Screw it. This is too good. We're going to use it again <laughs> because we like it that much. Scott, before we move on to talk briefly about the Who's Lost Year, do you have any thoughts? Um, I, I mean, you guys have mentioned virtually everything on the album I'd like to. Ta uh, tattoo, I would just mention, is is one that really grew on me over the years, I guess lyrically and also musically. It's really a wonderfully written song. Um, and then the, the other point, I, I I'm not sure if you're heading this way, but I want to make sure we talk about some of the tracks that are, are added on later. Some of these were what, yeah, rejects going from... Yeah, go into it now because right. that, 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 that dovetails with this. There, yeah. there really are, uh, at least if, uh, Jeff will correct me, a few of these tracks were rejected from the album. A few were, were written around the same time. But if you get the, I think it's a 1995 reissue of yeah, get the, the Folks, get, get the one CD version, and if you're a super fan, go get the deluxe two CD edition later, but get the one CD version to start. But these songs that are added on um, are, are fabulous. Um, I, I think in some places they're even better than songs that made the album, and that's a very high bar, but some of these songs that are that are tacked on, uh, "Glittering Girl," I think, is a is one that was written for the album and left yep. off. What an A plus guitar sound from Townsend uh, on "Glittering Girl," fantastic song. Bye.
melancholia uh, has this driving guitar edge, but there's so much in mel- melancholia that I think points forward to what we hear on Tommy and even even years into the future. There's there's a whole lot of stuff happening on melancholia. Fun fact, by the way, that he wrote that song uh, when he was depressed about the failure of I Can See for Miles in the it, charts. A, it is a really, That's what it's about. It's a downer of a song. <laughs> the sun is shining, but not for me. Um, <laughs> the sheets are gray. Yeah. Really. Ever yeah. since the day she went away, I've lost all power. I, I really yeah. like Early Morning Cold Taxi, and then the the, the one that uh, actually we'll, we'll revisit in just a moment because it's it's, it's taken for part of Tommy is, is Glow Girl. Uh, yeah. It's a boy from Tommy is 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 from here, and listening to the first forty five seconds or so of Glow Girl, um, you can see like that's guided by voices, like completely guided by voices. The first forty five seconds of Glow Girl, that's where that band was birthed uh, at the okay. beginning of that song. I just can't, you know, I, I I keep going back to like trying to relive my memories as like a 15 year old, but like hearing, I got the CD, right? This is my first exposure to the album. I get to the end of it. It's like almost 80 minutes long. And I'm like, oh, how is this thing keeping up? How I can't believe how good these bonus tracks are. And then on the last song, Glow Girls, the last song on the reissue, I hear that opening chime. Do, 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 do. And it just kicks in and I'm like, oh my God, they don't stop. <laughs> They're a machine. (laughs) They're relentless. my my cards here i I think quadrophenia is the is not only the who's greatest album i actually think it's the greatest album of all time in in rock music history um but i'll always have an emotional identification with the who sell out that uh is is not overlapped it's not replaced by my love for quadrophenia and this entire era of the band which they would soon grow out of uh, and they would become a much more serious band is just it's so wonderful. It's so magical. And, and I guess maybe the fact that it is kind of evanescent, that it didn't last forever, that it was just a, a phase that they moved and they transitioned through makes me love it even more mm-hmm. because it's almost like the stolen moment that you see in the, you know, the maturing, the maturation of a group from, you know, you know, kids to adolescents to adults, but the humor the love, the sincerity, the goofiness, the melodicism that you see here. Um, God, folks, I just can't emphasize to you enough. If if you thought The Who was just about, like, you know, Baba O'Reilly, meet the new boss, Sims, the old boss, who the F are you, <laughs> or just my generation, please, please, please check out The Who Sell Out and this era of their career. 
take a quick second and tell you about NR Plus. It's a lot more than just a digital subscription. When you become an NR Plus member, well, yeah, you get unlimited access to the National Review Digital Magazine. Of course you do. But it's a membership. That means you get access to the members-only Facebook group at nationalreview.com. They also are doing conference calls. The one this week was with Rich Lowry and Larry Kudlow. Not a bad guy to have on this conference call. You get access to it if you are an NR Plus member. You can comment on stories. And very nice for your reading pleasure. When you are an NR Plus member and you are logged in, you will see up to 90% fewer ads on the site and zero ads within articles to mess up your mess up your long read. So why not join today? Go to nationalreview.com slash plus, nationalreview.com slash plus. Read about everything the membership has to offer. Then click on join now to see all your options. And you get, how do we forget? You get all the back episodes, back to episode one, back to Sean Trendy, back to Van Halen of Political Beats. That also comes with the NR Plus membership. NR Plus, nationalreview.com slash plus. Now, I guess, I suppose we have to talk briefly about their lost era. Uh, the, yeah. You know, uh, the 1968, uh, they were touring. Touring is always a big problem for the band because, you know, they interrupts recording schedules and it's probably pretty hard to write on the road, things like that. Also, the songs and the albums weren't as successful. That's the fact that has to be reckoned with. Yes, I can see yeah. for Miles only went to number 10. Pete Townsend's masterpiece, his chef d'oeuvre, this was the thing that was going to take the Who over the top, and it relatively flopped. The Who sell out didn't do that great in the charts. We all recognize it as a masterpiece now. So what happens in 68? Well, he has this idea. He's going to finally go for the gold and do his little rock opera about, a you know, uh, what is it? A deaf, dumb, and blind boy. But before we get there... They're spending time writing it, recording it, agonizing over it, and they got to keep themselves in the market. And so we have a bunch of songs. Some of them are released as singles. Some of them are held over as outtakes. They only come out much later, like on the Odds and Sods collection in 1974. Um Again, to me, this is of a piece with the 1967 era of The Who. This is weird. This is goofy. This is emphatically not like rock hard rock and roll either as the who were in the early 60s or as they would become identified with in the 70s but god i love it i mean they did a song a single that townsend is basically disowned called dogs <laughs> this is a song about dog racing it was never going to be a single in america this is as british as they get because nobody really goes to the dog track unless you're homer simpson you know <laughs> in the in the you know you know buying santa's little helper right uh but you know a song about dog racing uh, and it's goofy. It's like, you know, there's the, the refrain, the chorus of the song is literally about like, you know, some blotto guy going to the dog track. He meets a girl there. They fall in love. And he's, he's, he's reflecting on, on what he learned. He's like, there was nothing in my life bigger than beer. There was nothing in my life bigger than beer. And I just laugh at the sincerity with which Roger Daltrey sings that. Uh, and talking about like, yeah, the only thing I really care about is just getting drunk until I met you and also our sweet little dogs that we now have adopted. This is silly, silly stuff, but my God, I treasure it so much. There was nothing in my life bigger than Except if you, little darling, 
I guess the other thing you have to talk about is you can't leave 1968 without mentioning Magic Boss. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that one. <laughs> I'll say this. Magic Boss is my least favorite Who song by like an order of 12. So I, why? I, don't, I don't really have much to say. <laughs> well, no, no. Actually, I want you to explain why you hate it so much. That's entertaining. Yeah. I, 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 um, I don't like the rhythm. I don't like... Sort of a, the haphazardness of it. Well, um, you got a you got a problem with Bo Diddley? Come on, uh, it's just, <laughs> I've never like, and it, yeah, probably part of it is there was a uh, there was also a uh, a group of uh, people at the radio station when I was in college. They named their 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 jam band show the Magic Boss and played it a lot. And I, I, that that really didn't help things, but I didn't like it going into it. So there's all sorts of factors, I suppose. Now we have to drop like a seven minute long excerpt of the live version in here just to punish you. Well, I'm the one doing the mixing, so we'll see if that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben, any thoughts on these songs? I mean, there are other songs from this year that they were like on like there's like Faith in Something Bigger, which is, you know, Townsend really getting explicit about his religious, you know, quest. Or or Little Billy, the hilarious anti smoking PSA. Yes, yes, Little Billy uh, is actually good. No. <laughs> I, I, I like I like that song. It's yeah. so grim and grotesque about this fat kid who gets made fun of for being fat because all the, but all the other cool kids are smoking and they all die of cancer and little billy ends up adopting and taking care of their kids and you know is it any shock that the american cancer society decided not to run with this <laughs> <laughs> now billy and his classmates are middle-aged with children of their own they're smoking You know, I, look, I think that these, this is a period that kind of foreshadows uh, Tommy uh, in a lot of ways and and uh, shows that there's this sign of spiritual reflection going on in Townsend's life, which is obviously something that's happening to a lot of his compatriots at the time as well, including, you know, doing uh, LSD and, and uh, you know, uh, being interested in all of these different uh, things. So this is a, a spiritual turn. Uh, for them and uh, and it really presages you know what would be just an extraordinary period of creativity on their part uh, but 68 yeah it's just kind of a it, it, I mean it's just a, a year that does not go as well for them uh, and uh, and it's pretty underwhelming in terms of the popularity of, of the music that they're producing um, I actually like dogs I think it's I think it's a little underrated. Um, yeah, but, da, 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 but, but, uh, but I agree. I actually agree that Magic Bus is not high on my list of, of <laughs> songs. I just, uh, I, I find it just sort of cloying and uh, and irritating. So, uh, yeah, no, I'll be with Scott on that. <laughs> Well, I don't care how much I pay. I'm going to drive my bus to my baby each day. I do like the, those overheated backing vocals. Uh, you know, too much magic bus. But of course, you but know, I will say what, what I will say is that 
that song is, I think, for a lot of people, it's uh, it's it's actually their entry point mm. to the Who because it's very catchy. It's it's an earworm. Uh, once you hear it, you can't really unhear it. And so, I think there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, may have expressed interest in this band because of a song that is you know, from my perspective, uh, overplayed, uh, doesn't deserve the kind of attention that it gets. It's not very uh, representative of what I really think any, any era of the who. I, I always think of it actually as kind of their yellow submarine. Yeah, it's no, a, that's a good way to think I, I could, yeah, it. It's, it's yeah. a kid's song in a way, really. <laughs> yep. I mean, like you think about the magic school bus, right? That's clearly based on the idea of magic bus. Like they just changed, you know, you know, <laughs> Clearly, I was inspired by it, right? So, like, yeah, it's fine. Broken down six months every day Just to drive to my baby Broken down six months each day Cause I drive my baby everywhere Um, you know, it's a nice song, um, and I guess that inevitably brings us to uh, the big elephant in the podcast, which is a an album. Is it timeless? Is it ta- is it timeless or is it tasteless? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, and I think in a very good way. And it's obviously Tommy. You know the the old line. I think Pete used to say is that the who made tommy and then tommy made the who they were a struggling band in a lot of ways we talked about how 1968 was a rough year for them and then they finally chased down for the first time you know pete townsend chased down his muse and put together a a rock opera the first you know people always say like well there was sf sorrow by the pretty things there are other like attempts at sort of these rock operatic things but I mean, come on, man. Tommy is the one. That is the one where you have a song cycle that is – I wouldn't say it's a clear narrative. I, I, I've actually thought about this you know, in the run-up to the show. If, if you try to work out the chronology of Tommy, you'll go insane because if you think about it, what's the song? 1921, got a feeling 21 is going to be a good year, and that's when Tommy apparently sees like his uh, father kill his mother's lover. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, does that mean that Tommy was already 70 years old in 1969? When is this when is this thing set? If you actually try to like work <laughs> out the chronology, it has to be set in like either like 1939 when pinball didn't exist, I might point out, uh, or or I, whatever. The whole point is that if you really focus on those granular details, you know, you're gonna just you're gonna, you're gonna nitpick it to death. It doesn't make any sort of deep narrative, literal sense. It it makes a sort of spiritual sense, though, and I have to give it credit for that. This is an album that I had almost feared to purchase when I first got it, which again was back in like 1995, 96. 
because like I had, you know, I had, I was in the, I was a drama kid. I'm embarrassed to admit this. I was oh, a drama. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. I mean, I was a musician. I was a drama club kid, you know, and they were like, Oh, I love Tommy. I love Tommy. And I was like, I hadn't heard it. And I was just like, all this, all the people who say they like this are just the most insufferable people I know. <laughs> um, and I went and got it, and the album itself is just, just excellent. I can't really argue against it. I think in, in the run-up to this show, I probably listened to live performances of this album uh, you know, a solid 50 times. So I think I've heard it more than, than most human beings. I think it's a magnificent record, and it, it, it is the absolute hinge point of their career. You can hear the transition from that who-sell-out, goofy pop art, perspective and sound and then you can also hear who's next coming over the hill um i don't know how we want to reckon tackling this one because it is an enormous task i just think maybe the best way to think about it is that here are a bunch of incredibly good riffs and Mm -hmm. great performances and wonderful harmonies and uh really nice touches of piano and french horn and you could Play this thing instrumentally and you would be a really happy guy no matter what. So uh, I want to ask you a question before we go any further, which is just how much has the has the uh, the existence of YouTube changed the way that you consume music, particularly live music? Um, not as much for me as you might think. Uh, I have a really voluminous, I mean, comically voluminous collection of live bootlegs uh, on my computer because I have a general sense that unless you own a file or you have a CD, then you don't really own it yeah. because like, yeah. something can get taken down at any moment and yeah. it's gone and then too bad for you. Um, so there are bands that I'm not like as huge a collector of that I do rely on YouTube for to like see stuff, but like for the who, Oh, all of that stuff's on my computer. Man. So to me, I, uh, it, it's changed a lot for me because while I do have a significant collection of, of music and a vinyl, I really was never a, you know, other than like a handful of, of bootlegs and live performances, uh, I was never really into that kind of, Oh, I'm going to download all this music and have it on my computer. Right. Uh, kind of thing uh, the way that that a lot of uh, my audiophile friends were yeah um, I'm, a, I'm a hoarder <laughs> I have to admit it. And, and so for me it's it's actually been it, it's made a huge difference because while I still have you know a ton of music I was not really a collector of live performances and and Tommy First off, Tommy as an album, I don't think is actually very well produced hmm. in, in terms of in terms of the approach. Uh, but I think that the live 
performances uh, of it are are just incredible. And it, it's what really, you know, to me, this album, it, it, obviously it, it takes the Who to another level. Um, it's it's does for them what something like Let It Bleed did for the Stones. Right. Uh, and it really turns Roger Daltrey into who he is now yeah. understood as, as this, this you know, uh, this star and uh, in a way that, that he was not really prior to this. Um, uh, but it's, it's the performances to me are of this are, are really amazing when it comes to their live work. And, and you can understand both why there was such a demand for it and why, and why the band would get tired of it. <laughs> you know, no, right. you've, you're locked in. You got to do this every time now. <laughs> you know, and um, I, I think, I think in like, like August or September of 1970, like they finally gave their last performance of Tommy live on stage, the full thing. And, you know, T Townsend announced at the opening of the show is like, this will be the last time that we ever play Tommy. And then Keith Moon just screams out from the back. Thank f- God. <laughs> so I went. Uh, did you did you by any chance go to um, uh, the the U two uh, Joshua Tree tour uh, that they did just a couple years ago? No, I didn't. No. I didn't. I missed it. So, so they would just do you know the whole album straight through, and then right. they would do some other songs and stuff at the end. Sure. And the perspective that you got on it was first off, this album is is. I mean, I I personally think that Achtung Baby is better than than Joshua Tree. Me but too. That's just me. Um, uh, but you are impressed by it as an album, and you're impressed that there's a band that would do that. That would say, "We're going to take this album, we're just going to play it all straight through in order, you know, and give you this live experience that that is uh, uh, sort of one of a kind." But if a band had to do that every night all the time you know <laughs> like it, it has to drive them crazy um and so i don't know if they i mean i don't know enough about the inner workings of the band to know if they like really factored that in <laughs> when they were creating this album <laughs> but it certainly changed their relationship with it and their relationship with the audience which which came to you know expect them to do all of this i think they were grateful for it if only for the fact that it, it allowed them to work off right. all of the debt they had it was successful yeah. so yeah they had they they were deep in the red at that point, and they weren't really commercially successful. And all of a sudden, everyone wants to come see this 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 hot band with this new idea, this rock opera. And of course, Jesus Christ Superstar then comes out like a year later, like basically taking the same idea and is like, let's talk about Jesus, except like I mean, basically it's Tommy, but set to the New Testament. I mean, that's a really funny thing. Andrew Lloyd Webber clearly listened to Tommy. He's like, I can do this. <laughs> okay, you know, wait. So let me ask you this. What is your actual favorite song on this album? Oh, it's easy. Um, it, and maybe not the one you expect. It's Go to the Mirror. Hmm. Um, oh, huh. Okay. Go to, go to the Mirror. I would not have expected that one. Yeah, see, there you go. I, I, I aimed a surprise. <laughs> um, go to the Mirror to me is uh, the best song on Tommy for the simple reason that it, it encapsulates everything that makes the album great as a songwriting triumph and a performance triumph. So what does Go to the Mirror have? First of all, it synthesizes so many of those. So Tommy is an album for those, I guess if there's anyone listening who actually hasn't heard this record or isn't familiar with it, it's an album that's basically built 
like a Frankenstein's monster out of riffs, all right? All these sort of melodic themes and riffs that Pete Townsend had been working on. There's that Sparks uh, Rael riff mm-hmm. that comes back for, you know, for Sparks' Amazing Journey and also on Underture. Um, there is, you know, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do that's go to the mirror. There's the see-me-feel-me thing. There's the I'm free riff there's the pinball wizard riff you find them coming weaving their way in and out of these songs which actually i think is one of the reasons why the album holds together really well townsend was smart about this but go to the mirror incorporates so many of them it begins with of course that go to the mirror riff then it cuts into the see me feel me thing and it ends with the listening to you thing that is reprised at the end of we're not gonna take it Mm -hmm. but here's the other thing about that song um there's drama in it Okay, and I'm not really always, you know, deeply into the Tommy trip, you know, the spiritual angle that Townsend was trying to work with this, but I have to really take my cap off and appreciate how intensely dramatic that song is and the tension works. Like, what is at this stage of the plot? You know, they've taken their deaf, dumb, and blind kid, who, by the way, is not actually deaf, dumb, and blind, but it's all psychosomatic. Like he saw his father slay his mother's lover. The father's away at war. He comes home, finds his wife sleeping with another man, kills the guy, and then they say, "Oh God!" But the kid saw it all, and they're like, "You didn't hear it. You didn't see it. You won't say anything to anyone." And so the kid becomes voluntarily deaf, dumb, and blind. Again, very silly late '60s stuff. Um, they're worried about him. They take him to a doctor, and so it opens with. The father saying, you know, he seems to be completely unresponsive. The tests I gave him show no sense at all. The doctor says that. Uh, and then it cuts to Tommy singing, see me, feel me, heal, see me, feel me, touch me, heal me. And you you go from the outside narrator to the inner monologue of the deaf, dumb, and blind boy. And this might sound silly, but I have to say that it, it's really effective. It heightens the dramatic tension when you, you cut. Roger is singing the one voice, and then Pete sings the other voice. And it's all set to this incredibly great music. And yeah, so why do I choose that one? Because that one to me encapsulates everything the album is about. The great riffs, the great vocal performances, the sort of dramatic operatic tensions of it and you know it, it you know it, it catches the the final sort of glorious climax at the end of it as well see me feel me touch me Stimulation needed to remove his inner blood. 
But there are a hundred other great songs. I mean, Jesus, nobody here has even mentioned Pinball Wizard yet. It's a pretty good song. Pretty good song, which ironically well, Pete Townsend only wrote because he wanted to get a good review from yes. the New York Times <laughs> reviewer. I mean, pin, Pinball Wizard, uh, the, the music has to be so good to make up for, let's face it, the, the, the really ridiculous lyrics. I mean... We're told he plays by intuition. We're also told he plays by sense of smell. Uh, he's got supple wrists. He's got crazy flipper fingers. I mean, <laughs> the lyrics are not exactly going to blow you out of the water, but that's well, how Scott, good Scott, the music how you, how, Scott, I got a question. How do you think he does it? <laughs> I don't know. What makes, what makes him so good? So, yeah, there's Pinball Wizard, and let me just mention to answer Ben's question, I think my favorite song on Tommy is either, it's either Sally Simpson, which is, which is like totally out of the Tommy storyline, yet it, it's a, it's a, it's a it, character who It wandered who is, in from another album. I, yeah. I love it. I love it. But it, it, it's about Jim Morrison, by the way. A lot of these songs were written before Tommy. Um, they were just like reincorporated into it because he's like, well, what do I have hanging around? <laughs> uh, he wrote this when they were playing, I think, in New York City. Uh, with the Doors in 1968, and he got really pissed at the Doors and Morrison in particular because he thought he was being really irresponsible, like goading the crowd, like trying to get them to riot, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and you know making them, you know, you know asking people to come up on stage and endanger themselves, and that's where that comes from, where like the stage invader, like the the, the delirious loving fan yeah. ends up injuring themselves. Just a, again another little fact that I had to throw out. The crowd went crazy. As Tommy hit the stage, little Sally got lost as the police lost the crowd back in a rage. Soon the atmosphere was cooler and Tommy gave a lesson. Sally just had to let him know she loved him and left up on the rostrum. She ran across stage to the spotlit figure and brushed him on the face. Tommy whirled round as a uniform man threw her off the stage. She knew from the start, deep down in her heart, she and Tommy were worlds apart. But her mother said, never mind, your part is to be what you'll be. If it's not Sally Simpson, though, my favorite song is Christmas. And that, too, sort of brings in some of the motifs from different parts of the album. I love that that bubbling guitar uh, figure after each of the uh, verse lines um, and the way it slides back into the main melody after that that middle uh, section. And there is somewhat of a uh, a thematic um, tension there about, you know, between the 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 picture 
uh, drawn, or picture, not drawn, of course, but picture uh, painted of the children's faces on Christmas morning compared to Tommy, who's deaf, dumb, and blind and can't understand, you know, Jesus saves and how will he be, how will he be saved? So there is a little bit of a lyric, uh, lyrical. It's, it, uh, it's actually a really sad image that works. Yeah. Like, yes, it's, yes. The thing is like, you know, we, we always think of Tommy as sort of like the juvenile version of like trying to do who's next in Quadrophenia, but there are some striking images on this album. And that's one that like this, this poor child, this, 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 you know, this crippled, deaf, dumb, and blind boy sitting there in the corner while everyone's experiencing Christmas. Man, that actually, I find it affecting, I, you know? It did me. And I listened to Tommy the whole way through for the first time in a while and there are absolute moments where now well you, jeff you have kids and uh, I, I have well you have a kid i have kids and just you know picturing and imagining and like that that's really sad right i mean that's it does hit you in a different way i think did you ever see the faces of the children they get so excited I mean, again, Pete Townsend, you know, like, was like 26 years old at this time. I'm just, I'm very impressed that he, he doesn't quite marshal it together. This is, again, it's, it's halfway through the silly, dark humor, weird bizarreness of the early Who's career, and then sort of maybe almost overly self-serious approach that they're going to be taking in the 70s. Um, but it, it's an interesting fusion. But Ben, hey, I'm going to turn it around back on you. What is your favorite song? So uh, I'm going to, since you've already talked about some of the others, I will lean into, I'm not sure it's my favorite, but but the things that I actually like the best about Tommy are the instrumental stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think Sparks is basically in my, like, top ten, you know, Who songs. I, I just, I think it's great. The Overture, the Underture, the, uh, the end of Amazing Journey. And I feel like the, this is just, it, it's, it's got these. It, these are all. These are all sort of elements where, when they show up, like in in movies or in, uh, like for instance, Sparks is in uh, Almost Famous. Yes, and that's a good example of like one of those songs where people are always like, "Oh, what is that?" Because it, it's at the edge of something that they recognize yeah. but don't really know where it's from. And uh, and I really like when those uh, show up in uh, in in other uh, in other lights as well.
I'll just say, uh, Pinball Wizard, I think, is is such a fun and funny song, but I don't know... I don't know how much Tommy really has resonance for, like, people who are younger than than me. Um, uh, I'm I'm 38, and I sort of think about this in the context of of like you know okay which songs which songs do people if I bring up the Who what what do they know well they know the stuff from CSI <laughs> they know the stuff that shows up in you know various uh, action scenes or something like that in movies um, kind of bro movies and that type of thing but they don't really necessarily know that Pinball Wizard comes from the center of Tommy like they they, they might have some knowledge of it like on the on the edge of their brains but I, I wonder. I want people to kind of reappreciate this for for how big of a deal it was at the time. Um, we've since seen, you know, all sorts of different approaches. You know, not just inspired by Tommy, but inspired by other rock opera type approaches as well. And I just think that there's there's a lack of knowledge among kind of younger music fans about the existence of this and how big of a deal it was for a major band to go down this road in terms of what they were trying to create. And, you know, honestly, you know, I, I think of, uh, I, I almost feel like someone needs to do something now that's inspired by Tommy. <laughs> um, you know, I know there was a whole cohort of, of, uh, music fans who, when Liz fair did exile and Guyville went back and listened to exile on main street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think that, I think that th- there's kind of something like that that needs to happen again. Like someone needs to do something that's e- either inspired by, or like an homage to this. And, and then maybe it will drive people back to the album because otherwise I think that the, you know, frankly, we're going to, we're going to cut off this conversation before we get to it. But who's next is basically the point where I think a lot of of modern younger music fans get their knowledge of the Who, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's it's unfair because I think that they are missing out on some of the great things that came uh, before that. Well, we'll stand by for my upcoming uh, double album release, Johnny. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's about my father, John, and uh, yeah, you know his, his journey through life. Is, is, he, is he deaf, dumb, and blind, but as somehow exceptional at video games? <laughs> yeah, you know what? Yeah, he was really great at Zelda Two: The Adventures of Link. Uh, it, it, it's remarkable. Um, Breath of the Wild by Sense of Smell. That's right. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I have to. By the way, I completely agree with you about the instrumental moments on this album. The overture, in particular, which you know, give credit to Kit Lambert as their manager and their producer. You don't think this is a really well produced album? I actually like it. I, I, I recognize that live, it's a very different beast. But I like that sort of it's a much more restrained sound. There's a lot more piano, French horn. There are touches here that could never be recreated live. I like the production of this album, and one of the things I like about this album is the uh, use of a lot of acoustic guitar and that ending of Overture where Pete Townsend actually flashes chops, uh, which is not something he usually bothered to do. He wasn't really interested in it, but that, that acoustic guitar solo that ends Overture that segues into It's a Boy, that's one of my favorite instrumental moments of The Who's entire career.
I also think that, like, you know, Underture, you, you, you cited Sparks, but Underture is, like, the one yeah. track that is always criticized as being, like, oh, that's the filler track. It's 10 minutes long. They're just jamming on that same instrumental theme that comes from Rail. It's on Sparks. I love that thing. I, I could listen to it for, for 40 minutes. I do not mind one second that, it, you know, it, they have a 10-minute long song to fill out the second half of the side you know side two of the album i think it works wonderfully there are there's songs on here that that we haven't talked about we just aren't going to have time to talk about i think 1921 is an amazing song amazing journey uh, the acid queen that yeah. weird sadistic yeah. that sadistic cousin kevin song by john entwistle i remember when i first heard it i wasn't looking at the lyric sheet i was like sitting in a you know in a, a food uh, you know, court at a mall. I had just bought the CD at the local CD store. Remember when Sam Goody was a thing? <laughs> and I was just listening to Cousin Kevin, and I was like, oh, well, here's a friend of Tommy's. We're on our own, Cousin. You're all alone, Cousin. And I was like, oh, maybe somebody will show him some kindness. And then all of a sudden, it turns into this horribly abusive thing where, like, he was going to tie him to a chair and leave him outside to drown in the rain. And it's, like, very frightening. And it's a great song. They never played it live. I really, really think it's an underappreciated piece. There's just so much you can talk about on Tommy until you're blue in the face. I think that Ben made the, the really important point, which is that this is where the Who start to become the Who, mm-hmm. as they're known. This is where Roger Daltrey, as a vocalist, comes into their own. This is where their concert act begins to solidify by playing this damn thing every single night upon night. I've got lots of bootlegs where Roger's voice is clearly shot because like they've been playing it every single night and you hit those high notes and you have to roar some of those things every single night back to back it's just going to kill your vocals um which is the the only i think best way to bring us to the final album that we're going to be talking about on the show which is uh, i guess i'm going to introduce this one modestly by saying it's the single greatest live album in the history of recorded music um <laughs> uh, that would be Live at Leeds, 1970. They recorded it on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1970, uh, during sort of the latter stages of the Tommy tour. First part of that was in 1969. And uh, this was originally just like a, a rather brief five-song album. Then it was reissued in 1995 uh, as a 14-song 
uh, one CD masterpiece that has basically become the definitive edition. Don't ever buy anything except that one CD version. Don't even buy the deluxe two CD version because the version of Tommy on this album I don't think is really well performed. Just get that one CD version. Uh, yeah, I'm going to just open by saying it, it's i've i've heard a lot of live music in my day a lot of live music in my day and i'll say this is the greatest live album ever made and a young man ain't got nothing in the world curious as to the context of this album because I have to admit I, I don't know as much uh, about the uh, the decision that they made to go this route I uh, am and, here for you I can so, tell you so 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 I, I, I want to agree with you of course I think that this is you know absolutely incredible um, and then you did not have the sort of omnipresence of like live performance albums uh, as something at the time it clearly it, it's something that it was very influential and inspired a lot of people. But where did this come from? Why did they decide to do it this way? They had been trying to do a live album for years. In 1968, they had recorded shows. Um, it, the Fillmore East, uh, in the hopes of putting out a live album, you know, during that weird long layoff between the Who Sell Out and Tommy. And later on, they finally released it as live at the Fillmore East. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was a very famous bootleg for years as well. In 1969, when they went on their North American tour, they recorded all of their concerts. And, you know, some of those tapes have since leaked. And actually, I would argue that, like, the the performances of Tommy that you hear in 1969 are so much better than the mm. one that you hear on live at Leeds or live at Hull or anything like that, because that was fresh for them back then. And they didn't, they weren't tired of it yet. Um, uh, so they had kept trying to like get this, the kineticism, the power of their live sound, which was a mystery to the world. We all now know the who is one of the great live bands of all time. In 1969, 1970, nobody knew that The Who was one of the greatest live groups of all time unless you had seen them live. Mm -hmm. And then you would be like, oh, my God, you would not believe what Keith Moon did to those drums. Uh, but if you hadn't seen them live, it was a mystery because it wasn't really represented on the album, especially the stuff like The Who Sell Out, which is very kind of pop art. It's not at all about that forceful attack. Um, it's a very different look at the band. And so they had recorded the stuff in 69, they got home to England in like January or Christmas, December of 69, January 70. Townsend didn't like the tapes. He said, screw this. He actually had his sound man burn most of them, which is mm -hmm. something that to this day he says he regrets. He says he was afraid of them being bootlegged. Of course, 
the ones that survived were inevitably blue anyway. <laughs> so he was right about that. Um, and he said, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're just going to book a couple more shows and we're going to get the multi-track recorder out there to tape them. And the one that they did was live at Leeds. And the irony is that the, the recording itself had flaws. Like there were these like record scratches and crackles that were like there. They even all, if you, if you have the old LP, the vinyl, it actually says like, you know, the, it, there's a, a notice on the label saying like, you know, the record scratches, the crackles that you're hearing are not a flaw of your record player that they were because there were electrical problems and the lines that were connecting the amplifiers to the board or something like that. Um, but they, got the performance because that performance is just ridiculous and the expanded version again is is just it's a joy they they do it's it's very representative of their career they do like one song from every one of their albums actually if you think about it mm-hmm. you got my generation from my generation you've got a quick one from a quick one you've got a tattoo from the who sell out and then of course you've got amazing journey and sparks from Tommy and uh, then you've got these amazing covers like you know I was actually a big fan of the old original Eddie Cochran version of Summertime Blues I'm not as big a fan of the Beach Boys terrible version of Summertime (laughs) Blues off their first album which if you've heard it don't hear it Um, (laughs) but no but there's no point never playing the song again uh, after the Who the Who Who retired that song as a cover you don't ever need to hear another version of Summertime Blues other than the one played by The Who at Leeds. That's how good it is. Same could be said for Young Man Blues are shaking all over as well. Yeah. But again, I talk too much. The uh, I it just really um, is a reminder or or a wake up to the world about how good they are live. Uh, in a way that it's a message that's just kind of sent out to people about about this. I mean, if you hadn't seen them in concert and didn't have the ability to know how good they had become as a live act. Um, you know, this is this is a wake up to all that, and and here's the thing. I mean, a lot of the people, you know, while while they did obviously tour around Tommy and and got you know sort of massive crowds and people coming out for it, they actually, with the exception of Woodstock, avoided uh, a lot of the big festivals. And so, if you gone if you'd gone to those festivals and seen a bunch of these other bands that were there, you still would not have seen them and necessarily known how powerful they were. Uh, as a live act um that those burn tapes uh i mean that's a real sad thing i mean it's <laughs> you know obviously uh, uh 
you know, Townsend's been public about his regret about that and that type of thing. Um, I mean, I've been posting the ones that survived to my uh, Twitter account. Um, oh, really? If, if you're around, when I, I, I put them up for an hour and then I take them down to prevent my Dropbox from getting completely slammed. But yes. <laughs> um, well, it's it's interesting and it's something that, uh, you know, is, is, is kind of lost content that I'm sure people would like to have back. But it, it really, the, the amount of... of uh, inspiration that I think comes out of this live at Leeds, you know, approach and uh, releasing this format is something that will drive the live releases of lots of different uh, rock bands in the future. Uh, the way they try to capture that energy, um, and and what you also are experiences is experiencing is uh, how far along Daltrey has come as as a leading uh, man and and uh, the ability to you know, be a, a full on rock star, uh, in a way that he hadn't been before earlier in his career, just a few years earlier. Um, I agree with you about summertime blues. Uh, I think uh, young man blues is, is excellent. Um, and I think that the, uh, you know, the, the approach that they have here is just, you know, it's never going to be matched in terms of, of a live album. Um, and everyone should, it's, Everyone should listen to it, you know, even if they're not a fan of The Who, even if they're just a fan of rock music generally. It's it's just one of those musts that you can't uh, avoid and that you shouldn't avoid. As it's, like, it's like reading Plato's Republic. Like, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's the equivalent of that. Like, you, you don't know anything about rock music. And if you haven't heard live, it leads. Don't, <laughs> don't pretend to even get into this conversation, my friend. You know, like, it's that important. It's that legendary and people will always argue like what's the greatest i mean I, there are other ones i would throw out there you know there's uh you know van morrison's it, it's too late to stop now mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of ones i could mention but man it actually isn't even a tough call for me because every time i've heard this album I, I, at least a hundred times at least a hundred times and i never get tired of it i'm looking looking at my my computer right now i just opened up my windows media player i have literally 17 25 versions of Young Man Blues, <laughs> and they're all from that 1968 to 1970 era. That's how much I love hearing them play that song. <laughs> That's great. So listeners to the show, and uh, Jeff, who hosts the show and I believe listens most of the time, will know, uh, you know, live albums for me, I I'm essentially ambivalent toward most. Uh, whether or not they deserve to exist or how much they add to a band's catalog or, or, or you know, what value they add to the to the recorded work. And so it does take a lot for me to say this. I mean, Live at Leeds is a, is a monumental work. It, it is in, it, it's an incredible, incredible live album. Uh, and, and the sound, the recorded sound of The Who is just something to behold. It is so vicious. It is so heavy. Uh, from the opening from the opening moments of the, uh, you know, if you get the, the, the one that Jeff recommended, the first track is Heaven and Hell. Yeah. The first moments of heaven and hell, they blows you away. It is so powerful to imagine that it's all this. It's a fragmentation grenade. You're like, how yeah. did they not fly apart? And like just seems. And essentially, three guys. I mean, Daltrey's there too, of course, but I mean, it's bass, drums, guitar. And to get that sound out of those three instruments is absolutely unbelievable. <laughs>
Yes, even as a uh, as a as a skeptic of the value of a lot of live recordings, um, live at Leeds just blows things away. It is so good. I mentioned earlier, you know, a quick one while he's away. The song from a quick one uh, on that album is produced so so flatly, and it is it is unbelievably powerful on live at Leeds. It it, it is an entirely different song. On this album, Tattoo, which Jeff mentioned from uh, from Sell Out, is here too. And on Sell Out, it's kind of a uh, uh, a gentle little number, and it is it's just, it's a crunching monster here on Live at Leeds. Um, Shake it all over, uh, as good as Summertime Blues is. Yeah, sh- this is like the definitive version also of Shake It All Over. The thing um, about Shaking All Over that has to also be emphasized is that this was like the Brits didn't have a lot that they could call their own in terms of classic early 60s pre-Beatles rock. One of the very few songs that they could be proud of was Johnny Kidd and the Pirates version. They did Shaken All Over. And it was like basically the only British song from, you know, again, you know, before like 1963 that you could say like that was us. That wasn't like, you know, Chuck Berry and the Americans, you know, importing all their music or exporting rather all of their music to our island that was us we made that ourselves mm. and that's why the who adopted that song that's why that that song was so important to the mod scene and that's why they have such a really kind of well thought out they've been playing that song for like four years at that yeah. point and i've heard the early versions and how it's evolved and what you hear there is the final version and it is so good Sorry to interrupt. No, nope. <laughs> just dropping in the trivia, man. It's, I can't help myself. <laughs> I'm about I'm about wrapped up, but I mean, yes, you should hear live at Leeds. It is just it it just blows your mind how good the band was, how powerful, how heavy, how much this material just jumps up, and you can understand why they were so well regarded as a live act during that time. We end on an ambivalent note. But before we do, Ben, did you have something to say? I was just going to uh, say we should talk about The Seeker a little bit. Um, that was the ambivalent note that I was <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, it, it doesn't perform as well. You know, coming out uh, as a standalone single, uh, it only got up to 44 in the U.S. and 19 in the U.K. Um, it's obviously about Townsend's sort of spiritual quest that he is uh, currently on and concludes with the very unsatisfying uh, idea that you're probably not going to find the answers <laughs> and certainly not from uh, Bob Dylan, the Beatles or Timothy Leary. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, which is itself kind of a very British sentiment. <laughs> um, I, I like, I like the seeker. I like it. I like it better than I, I think that, uh, uh, that they did. Uh, but that's, that's just me. It's one of those songs that tends to disappear between the cracks. There's a lot of, uh, as we'll see in our next episode, some of those early 70s Who singles do. Um, but they're all good. And this one's really good. And I think my favorite aspect about it, a great lyric, as Ben pointed out. But my favorite part of the lyric is, you know, the way he's, the first time he comes to this line is that people, he says, people tend to hate me because I never smile. As I <laughs> ransack their homes, they want to shake my hand. And then, uh, later on, when he goes back to that middle eight, he says, you know, I learned how to raise my voice in anger. Now look at my face. Ain't this a smile? <laughs> so he's like, well, I've learned how to smile, but it's obviously a grimace of rage. Uh, that is like, you know, like, uh, it's it's like that meme that you see from 4chan where the guy is smiling, but he's wearing a mask <laughs> and underneath he's crying. You know, that's the seeker who who's he's looking for me. He's looking for you. We're looking at each other and we don't know what to do. 
Uh, I think it's a really underrated single. And again, this is the moment where they still sound like instrumentally of a piece of the Tommy era. This sounds mm-hmm. like it could be from I'm Free yeah. or Go to the Mirror. But the lyrical concerns clearly point the way forward to what will be coming on our next episode. I learned how to raise my voice in anger Never look at my face Ain't this a smile I'm happy when life's good And when it's bad I cry I got bad news but I don't know how or why I'm looking for me You're looking for you To get what I'm after Till the day I die And that's part two Which is uh, which is coming next Starting with, uh, coincidentally Who's next? We, uh, we come to the part of the episode In which all three of your hosts Give you the two albums that you should own The five songs you simply must hear From our featured band the Who. Ben Domenech with us, publisher of The Federalist and writer of The Transom. Follow him on Twitter at B. Domenech. Ben, the floor is yours for your two albums and your five songs. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think that given the conversation that we've had, that it's it's pretty straightforward and, and not a surprise to say that you need to own Live at Leeds and, and you need to own The Who Sell Out. Um, you need to get both of those albums. In terms of five songs, uh, uh, you know, again, I, I feel like this is this is maybe a little bit uh, uh, too straightforward, but I would say can't explain. Uh, I can see for miles substitute uh, my generation and sparks. Um, I just think that you get with that mix uh, a good bit of the the different approaches that they use during this uh, early period of the who's work. And I think you would also get uh, a a flavor of what's to come. It's actually going to be a lot harder for me to pick out five songs at the end of <laughs> the next conversation, uh, because I think that's going to be a much tougher, uh, uh, and, and, and competitive world. Um, and look, you know, I, I think you can, you can, uh, as, as we, as we were talking about Tommy, you can take different songs from Tommy and you can, uh, you know, approach it in different ways. But I feel like the inclusion of sparks gives you something that, sort of indicates the the instrumentality of of this band uh, in a way that uh, that is really revealing. Yeah. So my two albums are the same two albums, Live at Leeds and The Who Sell Out. For the five songs, uh, The Kids Are All Right from uh, my generation. Uh, Pictures of Lily, uh, as Ben pointed out, probably the, the genesis, the begin points of what we know as power pop. It's just a fantastic song. Uh, from... Uh, Tommy, uh, Christmas. Uh, I would also put I Can See for Miles. It's uh, the Who's only top 10 single in America, but also just a really well-produced song. And um, from, the, from the sellout bonus tracks, uh, Glow Girl w- would be my fifth mm. song on this list. Jeff, over to you. Boy, this may be, I guess I can't know for sure, but I think it may be the first time we've had complete unanimity <laughs> I think so. on the albums. <laughs> 
because it's obviously the Who sell out and live at Leeds. It, I, do I need to explain it? You've heard this episode at this point. You know why we think that. Uh, my five songs, I'm going to go, first of all, uh, chronologically here, was Substitute. I think, as I said, it's the greatest, one of the greatest non-album singles of all time. I, it's a song that I can listen to on repeat and indeed have done so for a you know a solid half hour and I don't get bored. Uh, my second song will be from the Who Sell Out. It's Our Love Was. Uh, it's just one of those things that makes me sort of you know despair that more people do not realize how beautiful, weird, quirky, and also sort of you know spiritually impassioned uh, Townsend and the Who could be during this otherwise quirky pop art phase. My third song is I Can See for Miles. You guys have mentioned it already. Both of it's on all five, all three of our lists. Um, my fourth song will be uh, from Tommy. It's uh, Go to the Mirror. That's my nominee for the best song on Tommy. I already explained why I think it embodies basically all of the best qualities of the album, which is uh, an album that is weirdly both simultaneously underrated and overrated. Um, I, I, I think that that, people dismiss it now because they're like, well, what about all these other great albums by the who? <laughs> but listen, Tommy is really good. Okay. You know, don't, don't sleep on it just because, you know, the drama kid who you hated in high school was really obsessed with it. Um, and I guess I'm going to end with, uh, my weirdest choice, my number five choice. It's dogs, dogs, the, the weird disowned non-album single from 1968, the lost years who, Pete Townsend literally described that year, that era of the Who is like, yeah, we went a little bonkers. We recorded a lot of songs about dogs. Um, <laughs> I love this song. Uh, from the beginning all the way to that great chorus, to the wonderful harmonized chorus at the end where he just sings, yes, it's you, little darling. Yes, it's you. And then Pete starts talking about how the dogs have lovely buttocks and they're they're excellent runners and oh where's me wage packet oh I hope the wife don't find out uh, wonderful song wonderful band I'm so glad that we were able to get this part one of the Who's career done uh, during a, a time of you know great great stress and great trouble I hope you guys enjoy it and we'll be back soon uh, to cover the big Titanic years of the Who and we'll see you then. Indeed. Our uh, thanks to Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist and writer of The Transom. You can follow him on Twitter at B Dominich. And um, we hope you come back for part two. Otherwise, that would be pretty awkward. 
Yeah, it would be very anticlimactic. <laughs> Can't wait for it. Tons All of stuff right. to say. Uh, Jeff, you can find him on Twitter and offering uh, very neat live bootlegs uh, now and then during this. I, uh, I call shutdown. it. I call it my COVID Chronicles bootleg series, where I just like, hey, we're all trapped inside and. What's the least I can do is I can let you hear some really fun live music from various artists and bands that I've collected over the years. Uh, Jeff's online on Twitter at Esoteric CD. My name is Scott Bertram. I'm there at Scott Bertram. Subscribe to our feed, wouldn't you, for new feeds, uh, new feeds, new episodes. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com and find those episodes. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews. Find us on Twitter as well at political underscore Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. You're all forgiven.